there we go hello everyone thank you all for coming by another merged worlds dungeons and dragons story stream um, i am excited to get to share some story with you today um, sadly last week's episode um, was kind of canceled at the last minute it was definitely not what i'd intended uh, but unfortunately my town experienced a power outage about 30 minutes before the stream, and it was out for four hours. So, uh, unfortunately, I had no power or internet with which to stream. So, I apologize uh, that we did not have an episode last week. But, uh, we have this week. So, uh, I'm excited to get back into the story and tale and continue uh, sharing it with you. Um, so, as we're... I'll go kind of touch on where we left off, of course, uh, setting that up for folks who may not were here previously, um, and then we'll continue on with our tale. Uh, so, the overall storyline, the arc of this current campaign section is that um, our heroes, uh, after a, a great war against uh, the forces of Oromon, uh, which is an empire they've battled for quite some time, uh, led by Marcus Dawnbringer, uh, the High Cleric of Pandora, goddess of lies and deception. Um, battle ended uh, with Serenity being the victor, um, and the return of their friend Tobias, who has now gained the role or mantle of the Keeper, um, the right hand of the goddess of time and protector of the sands, which is the library that records all things that have happened are happening and will happen. Um, he has been granted great power and such by his goddess um, for one last earthly mission, uh, and that is to bring about the defeat and destruction of Marcus Donmere, the emperor, as he is known. Uh, our heroes have been doing several different quests, gathering items and allies that he has told them they will need if they are to succeed against uh, the Dawnbringer, and so they've been doing that. Currently, uh, there are three magical artifacts that they have to collect, um, and he broke them into three very specific groups. Uh, the first group uh, entered a very desert-like area, um, led by Darsh uh, Fohammer, or Minotaur, one of our main four characters, uh, and they retrieved um, the Bone Lance uh, from a tomb of what was believed to be an evil ancient sultan. Uh, who's buried there. Um, and then our second group, the group that we're kind of uh, <coughs> telling the tor uh, tale of right now, uh, they have gone to, well, they were supposed to be going to, uh, a very cold and arctic area, seeking something called the um, uh, the, the uh, Staff of Winter. So, this group is Mercy, uh, Artemis, Lars, Nathalian, and Michael. Um, dressed up, all bundled up for cold weather, they walked through the portal and found themselves instead in a very jungle-like terrain. Um, and traveling through a, almost like a large crater, like jungle crater, they uh, ended up coming across a undead T-Rex that they had to fight. Uh, once they successfully defeated that, um, they were led by uh, some locals to... Um, basically the edge of what was the jungle and the beginning of what was a frozen tundra-like area, uh, relatively mountainous. And there they found a small village of dwarves who were trying to stake out a new life there. 
uh, on the frozen shores of a great lake. There's a tower that our heroes are looking for. Uh, supposedly the Staff of Winter is in. Uh, the dwarves are aware of the tower. It is in the middle of the lake, and they state that it is frozen in ice, and uh, there's never been any signs or anything that would uh, would imply anything lived there. Um, but where it's at, it's very deep and dangerous, and with the ice in the water, uh, the dwarves have never gone near it, nor did they have any need to. It seems very out of place. Uh, the dwarves agree to take them as close as they can, which they do, um, and they get it uh, kind of over there and drop them off on the ice. And that's where we left off with our, uh, our group of five friends uh, approaching the frozen tower. Um, so, yeah. It's very, very cool. I'm coming back. <laughs> All right, Blynn, no worries. I understand. <laughs> Michael, yes. Michael is uh, one of the main characters. Well, he's one of the, the uh, main NPC. Uh, the four main characters, of course, Darsh, the Minotaur, Artemis, the Elven Cleric of Healing, Mercy, the uh, female warrior who's now the Queen of Serenity, and Dandelion, who is Michael's wife and who is a Kender rogue. Um, Michael and Dandy are undead hunters as well. So, again, where we kind of left off, um, they were approaching that tower in the very bitter cold that they were approaching. Um, so, made through the Dinosaur Valley. Yes, here we are. So I'm going to jump into that, but uh, again, I would say thank you all for coming and giving me the opportunity to uh, share my story with you all. Uh, it is my favorite thing I get to do as a content creator, and I appreciate you letting me do that. Uh, if you enjoy the uh, story today, uh, please remember you to click like uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, uh, subscribe if you're new here, um, or if you're listening to this as an audio podcast on iTunes or Spotify, uh, click, if you would mind giving it a like or a follow or a subscribe or a rating or review, whatever it is on the audio podcast of choice, uh, it would be awesome. I'd love to hear your feedback. It would definitely help. All right. So, uh, fear not, I have pink lemonade today, so this story will be extra epic, as I am a fan of the pink lemonade. Uh, my whistle is officially wet. Let us begin. So, um, the tower itself, as they're approaching it, again, it's very windy. They're walking on ice. They're tied together, but still staying a decent um, distance apart, not knowing exactly how strong the ice is the whole way there. So they have to travel a good distance across the ice in what is the very center of this lake. Um see here. The tower, they could see it immediately. It, even even though it is, uh, I want to say it was early in the day, they could still see it in the distance, even though there's a very f a fog over the lake. Uh, it's just obvious. It's a very large tower. <clears throat> Unusually thin. Thinner than you'd expect for a tower of, of that height. Um, um, architecturally, it does not look uh, like it was meant to be there. It looks very out of place. It's not crooked or nothing like that. It, it just looks like it's very out of place. And it appears to go down into the water itself. There's no land mass that they could see, like an island or something that it was built on. The tower appears to go down into the ice of the water itself. Um, so again, our, uh, our group in this situation, um, it's important to remember who we have. 
uh, because these people were chosen for specific reasons, right? So, again, in this group was Mercy, Artemis, Lars, Nathaniel, and Michael. So, uh, Lars and Nathaniel. Nathaniel, of course, being an elven prince and uh, very deadly with a bow. I mean, he's no Sir Nyklos, but he's pretty top. Um, Michael, of course, uh, being an undead hunter, carrying the magical staff Menandra, the intelligent weapon that was designed and created to destroy undead. Uh, he was definitely a boon against the undead T-Rex, which very often, you know, which the party assumes that's why he was included. Um, they don't know why each person was put in there, only that Tobias said these were the groups that had to go, and that all three artifacts had to be retrieved at the same time. So they all had to leave. They may not all return at the same time, but they all have to be around at the same time period. They have to be picked up in the exact same in instinct. I was asked about that. No. But they couldn't, like, go and then take a month to go get the next one and take a month to go to get the next one. They needed to gather them in a relatively close time frame. As they approach the tower, again, the ground seems very sturdy, although they're being cautious. Uh, Michael does advise them that he senses no undead. At the point they're at now, Menandra should be able to sense if there was any type of undead inside of the tower. Menandra senses no undead. Now, that's never a 100% guarantee, of course. Um, the more powerful the undead, sometimes, depending on the undead, the harder or easier it is to find. Very powerful undead who are intelligent undead uh, can sometimes evade or have powers and, or spells that can help avoid Menandra's detection. Um, but again, a great, large, powerful undead like the T-Rex, which is a very powerful undead, but was still a beast. It wasn't intelligent. Um, those she pick up immediately. They're just a huge source of undead energy um, with no real sense to mask it. But at this point, Michael tells them Menandra senses nothing. Because only Michael hears Menandra. Nobody else hears Menandra. In the entire time they've been together, only one person's heard Menandra once. And that was Dandy, the time, sh short time period that she merged with Menandra to face Draven's brother. But since that time, she's never been spoken to, nor has she wanted to speak. Menandra kind of creeps her out. Which, for a kender, is saying a lot. So, they approach, and they, they end up going around the tower a little bit, because at first they don't see anything that appears to be an obvious entrance. Um, but after they, they, they travel about a third of the way around, they can see something that appears to be a door. Um, from the looks of it, it is a door on a balcony, which would lead them to believe that this tower that's down in the water, there might be floors lower down inside of it. Uh, the balcony itself is only about six or seven feet above the ice. Uh, looks relatively sturdy enough. Uh, the whole tower looks itself odd, but it looks solid that they should be able to climb up there. Uh, six, seven feet's not far to toss a rope or grappling hook and pull themselves up. Uh, the concern is, though, is that from what they see when they actually get to the tower, there's six to eight inches of ice on the entire thing. Um, the first person who goes up, um, who climbs up, is Nathalian. Uh, in this situation, he is uh, the closest thing they've got to a rogue. <laughs> but as, as an elf and, and as the lookout, he spends a large part of his life climbing the... Uh, the masts of Darsh's ships. So climbing is pretty his, his easy sauce. So even though it's very windy on the lake, he's able to climb up pretty quickly. And it's very slick. 
The rope is fine, but when he gets up there and he's starting to pull himself over, he realizes the entire balcony is encased in inches worth of ice. Um, he's able to maintain his foot, again, being an elf in this situation, he's got a little bit of perks here, um, but he's able to kind of maintain his balance um, and starts chipping at the ice to see because the door is behind the ice as well. And he's chipping at it and the ice chips, but it's like, this is going to take a while. So he calls back down to them and he lets them know. He says, well, here's the situation, blah, 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 blah. Um, they, of course, Artemis is there. So Artemis has the chest of holding, as as usual. And uh, they decide to take the chest up on the balcony. Artemis climbs up there with him and try to see what options they got. They're like, well, we could try to light a torch and melt some of it, but that could be kind of slow. So they go down inside the chest of holding. They don't want to open the chest of holding on the ice, again, for fear the ice should crack. The chest of holding, while it's not that heavy, it's very, very important they don't lose that. There's just too much stuff inside that would be a huge loss to them. I mean, you can't just get a barrel of pickled fish anywhere. So they open up, and they go inside, and, and they bring back out uh, multiple uh, flasks of lamp oil. Um, and so, and, and, and just rolls of cloth. They have all sorts of weird things that they keep in there over the years. And I, I tried, did my best to keep track of what they wanted in there. They find a bunch of bolts of cloth. They find extra rope. They've got tons of stuff in there. They got cloth that a lot of times they bring in case it's something that they can trade with. It's not, not every community on their adventures may want money or coins or gems. Uh, they may want goods, so having relatively good quality cloth in, in a partial supply is a, a great thing to have in case they want to barter with it. But they get the cloth out, and they use some of their supplies to uh, try to chip some of it off the balcony, and they literally start a fire. Um, the door appears to be made of uh, metal. Um, it's not a wooden door. So they decide to take the chance to try to light a fire. And they put a large fire at the base of the door, because it's still ice, and if it does melt, it's going to be wet. So they use the lamp oil to kind of counteract that, and they create a pretty big fire. Artemis ends up climbing back down, and Nathalian stays up there in case the fire starts to get too big. Um, but it takes them a good hour, even with him constantly feeding the fire, uh, burnables and such, um, to finally melt the door enough that... Um, both Mercy and Lars are able to get up there uh, and start, Mercy with her morning star just starts bashing on the ice and starts chipping off once it's weakened. But it takes them a while and they finally get finally get it open. Uh, again, uh, at this point um, there are no specific things uh, that, and nothing that Michael senses. But as Artemis climbs up next, she goes up next. Mercy, like I said, and Lars are already up there. That just leaves Artemis and um, Michael. And as Artemis is climbing the rope, Nathalian notices movement on the ice behind them, and he calls out in time to see two relatively large shapes come quickly across the ice at them. Um, even with his good eyesight in the fog, it's a little hard to make out at first. Um, but after a couple of moments, it becomes clear that the things that are approaching them are two ice trolls. Uh, again, if you know anything about trolls in Dungeons & Dragons, ice trolls are a variation of the uh, common form. And a little bit tougher. Right now, Michael's the only one down on the ice. Uh, immediately, Mercy slides back down the rope. 
they don't want to get stuck up on this icy balcony trying to fight things of this nature. Both Lars and um, Nathaniel pull out their bows, which is, I mean, both of them, uh, both of them are, are good swordsmen. I mean, one's an elf who's been around hundreds of years and was trained as a prince. So, I mean, the dude's got skills. And then Lars himself is trained with Mercy and the other knights. I mean, he's no slouch either. Artemis up there is in the safest place she is because uh, she's away from the trolls. Uh, but it's for melee, it's just Michael and Mercy. Um, Artemis able to cast her spells from up there. So that battle ensues. And again, Lars and Nathaniel do a large part of the damage. Well, Mercy and Michael are, are, you know, do well. Uh, Mercy's Morning Star, not as useful against, uh, again, even the tough hide of a troll. Um, while Menandra is definitely a magic weapon that will cut deeply, it's a spear. Uh, again, trolls are large, tough, and they can take a lot of pain. And Michael's a little dude. So uh, the arrows that come catching in, which, again, they still had that fire there, so very quickly, Nathalian and Lars start lighting their, their, uh, their arrows because, again, trolls, fire, that's how you take out a troll. I mean, trolls can regenerate. Um, so if, unless you kill them with fire or acid, they can even return from death, depending on how much body is left. Um, but in the end, they are able to take out the trolls. Uh, more of a minor inconvenience, although one of the trolls jumps at one point and tries to get to the balcony. Um, Lars uses his sword to basically chop at the hands of the thing, takes off several of its fingers, and it howls and it falls backwards onto the ice where Mercy and Michael are now you know, trying to fight it with the side. And when it lands, they hear the ice crack. And <laughs> Mercy and Michael are like, oh, oh. So they have to finish the fight as quickly as they can because sure enough, as they're finishing up that battle, they can hear the ice cracking even more. It's still thick. It's not like sinking or anything, but the it's clearly been wake, uh, weakened. So, uh, at the defeat of the trolls, they do not have a lot of time to gather any of the trolls' parts, which normally they would do, knowing that troll parts and such probably be beneficial to the mage tower and to the mages. Uh, don't have time to mess with that. They had to climb out of there before the ice cracks and they start to sink. But they finally make their way into the Tower of Ice. Um, let's see. They got that up to... So, when they enter into the building, the tower, they find themselves uh, on a balcony of what is a large round room. Uh, over, incredibly large. Uh, almost like too big to fit in the tower. Mm -hmm. um, it definitely does seem inside, it is somewhat bigger than what it looked like outside. Although, you know, they weren't out there with measuring tapes, they can't say for sure, but at first glance it looks larger inside. Uh, the room is round, uh, but although it is still very cold in here, and there's still some ice, of course, there's ice and such on the inside of the walls. The floor and such appears to be relatively clear, um, but uh, it's definitely cold in there. They're all bundled up and such. Um, let's see. There are large. The, the room is also is also incredibly tall, and let's see. There are large you know, columns. Uh, that aren't overwhelmingly wide, but they're very tall, and they appear to be help. You know, kind of. They they look like they're bracing the ceiling, but they look too thin to be able to do so. Um, in the center of the, there's also a set of stairs 
Uh, they can see on the other side that goes up the tower and up into a, what looks like they can see a floor above them. And there appears to be another set of stairs uh, to their left that appears to go down. But the most obvious, because I always like to save the obvious for last, right? I'm a jerk like that as a DM. Uh, the biggest and obvious thing in the middle of the room is the uh, mammoth, the, the, the mammoth. There's a mammoth standing there just chilling. It is clearly not a living mammoth. It's a, it's a big statue of a mammoth, or it looks like it was a, a stuffed mammoth. It's in a classic, you know, like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, when you take animal bodies and you stuff them and you make them into art. Uh, whatever that is. Um, can't think of the word right now. <clears throat> I'm going to kick myself later, though. Uh, but they... Uh, it appears to be you know, one of those things. Like someone's gone and done that. Cause it's very set up. It's on a nice little pedestal. It's very artistically posed. Um, it, there's like some spears coming out of it, like it was in battle kind of thing. Um, but just due to the, the temperature stuff, it itself is also uh, encased in like you know a thin layer of ice as well. The stuff inside doesn't have as much ice as outside. Taxidermy. Thank you, Ashley. Thank you. I, I was. I knew it was a T word. Couldn't get it for the life of me. Uh, yeah, it looks like the tachydermic. Uh, good, well done. But our uh, our heroes are no slouches, and a big giant mammoth in the middle of the room is a little bit something to be ignored. So, they are in fact on a balcony, and there's several stairs that go straight down to the floor, and they can see there's some other balconies across from. It. Had they gone the other way around the tower, they would have come across another one. It was just the two. Uh, there's just short stairs that lead up to it. Again, they get the feel like this is more of like a second or third floor from the bottom. You know, like this isn't the, the full. Um, but they start you know, making their way across the room. They don't see anything else currently, so they're cautiously going to make their way towards the stairs. They decide to check the stairs down first. The belief is that, of course, what they're looking for is up, because that's just how these things work. But they still feel they should at least check down before they move up. They don't want to leave some type of threat behind them. Again, smart move to make. And they're very carefully moving around, trying to be very quiet. They have removed the ropes at this point. Again, the floor is, well, a little bit slick. Not enough that they're worried about they're going to fall through. And it seems sturdy enough. They're not afraid that the tower is going to collapse or something like that. It's definitely well built. Um, and so they... They get over to... Mercy is in the lead in this situation. Uh, without them having an official rogue, someone who can check for traps, uh, Mercy, as the leader of the group, is up front. Um, Nathalian is directly behind her. Lars is at the back. Um, or no, sorry. Lars is at the back with Michael, with Artemis in the middle. Because uh, that way they wanted an archer at the back. Because Lars, again, can melee an archer. So that would be an issue. Michael's there to support him if needed. At the front, Mercy's melee with Nathalian's keen bow right behind her, um, supporting her that way. Artemis, always keep your squishies in the middle. The most important rule of Dungeons & Dragons, keep the squishies in the middle. So they uh, they get to the stairs, Mercy does. And she's looking down and uh, a little surprised to find that it, it it's it's just solid ice. It's almost like that floor, because remember, they went down a little few steps, so they're right at the level of the ice is. It's like the, the floor beneath them was filled with water and frozen solid. It's just, to them, she goes, hey, it's just solid ice. So she's confident nothing's coming up out of there. At the same time, they're like, man, I sure hope we don't have to go down there. Because trying to, you know, 
if that is the lake that filled up the tower and then it froze, uh, that's not something they're just going to be able to easily go through. They got no magical to get items or anything that's going to get them through that. So they decide, okay, well, can't go down, but at least there's nothing there. They had barricaded the doors of the balcony when they came in as best they could. So if there were more trolls or issues, at least might slow them down or whatever would be banging on the doors trying to open it might at least alert them that something's coming from behind them. They're very cautious in these regards. The, the players had learned not to leave openings that I might take advantage of. Because uh, I'm that kind of DM. <laughs> but, uh, yes. So, they begin to make their way towards uh, the stairs going up. And, of course... As you, and I, and they, and everyone who ever listens to this expected. Uh, <laughs> the mammoth begins to move. Um, as they, we get within a certain range of the mammoth, the spell that keeps it in stasis shatters, as does the ice around it, as the mammoth roars to life, like in its mind nothing had ever changed. And here it is in... It's not an intelligent creature. It's a mammoth in a cold room. That it, it has still has spears sticking out of it. It was definitely captured while in battle, or put in stasis. So it's in pain from that. And so all it sees now are these people in front of them, and no way out. And it attacks them. So they are in a situation where, yes, they are fighting a giant mammoth. Because I had not yet made them fight a giant mammoth, and I felt that Every hero needs to face a giant mammoth at least once in their career. Makes me wonder how I'll squeeze a mammoth in in the future for maybe other characters' experience. Everyone should have a good mammoth story to tell. Um, the battle itself is relatively standard. You know, the archers are in kind of stay blocking uh, and defending Artemis. Well, Michael and Mercy kind of try to stay as melee as possible. In this situation, uh, Menander is a, is a great benefit because being a very long spear that, oddly enough, you would think would be too long for Michael. Uh, because really looking at it, it should be. Uh, if Menander herself wasn't boosting his abilities when they merged like that, when, when he's making use of that ability, um, it would be difficult for him to wield but the magic of Nanner definitely benefits in that area. So being a long spear helps him out a lot. Mercy and her Morningstar, Morningstar is not that beneficial, so she switches to a sword at this point. Bonking a mammoth is, is just not going to have quite the effect. Um, and again, the uh, the archer's uh, linchpins in this, you know. Uh, Nathalian is just a dead eye with that, and he's going for eyes and mouth and open areas. And uh, Lars, again, no slouch either, whipping his arrows in. Artemis doing best to keep everybody healed. Really not a lot of damage in this situation. In fact, they used those poles uh, to uh, to their benefit. The poles, while they looked thin, were incredibly sturdy. And several times, the, they, by kiting him around, uh, I should clarify that kiting means to lead them, like pulling, like if you're pulling a kite, you're the string, the kite follows. Kiting something or a creature or something means the same thing. You're traveling in a distance, making it follow you to maybe lead it away from allies who are hurt or innocent people. You're kiting it in a specific direction. Uh, so by kiting it round and through these poles, the mammoth is trying to attack them, but it's also being 
limited in its movements and it's because of its size. Again, allowing the archers to just arrow after arrow. Um, but it's, it, was a, it was a long battle because mammoths have a lot of hit points. Uh, and so and these are little guys with little sticks, little pokes. Uh, they had to wear it down, but they were successful in taking out the mammoth, of course. Uh, while it was a bit of a tough fight meant to wear things down, it was clearly not an end-all fight. So now that they're in this situation, they're like, okay, well, the mammoth is now dead. There's a big dead mammoth lying in the middle of the floor. Again, in another time, another situation, uh, they'd probably skin that thing. Mammoth hide? Make some good blankets or rugs or something out of that. Um, Mercy's sitting here thinking how, you know, awesome it would be to put one of those horns on her, uh, or get those horns up on her, uh, big mammoth head in, in her, uh, what do you call it, her castle and her great hall, but uh, there's no fit in a mammoth head in a chest of holding. It still has to fit through the opening of a chest of holding. Chest of holding may be really big inside, but it's still a regular chest-sized <laughs> chest. Pirate chest, a large one, you know, a big trunk, travel trunk. And a mammoth head will not fit, and it would smell bad, and there's a chance that it could ruin those pickled fish. So they decided in the long run it's best to leave it alone. So, but at the same time, Mercy's like, you know, we get this all done and we've got some time, I may come back and try to get me one of them tusks because that would be that'd still be cool. That I could fit in there. So they start making their way up to the second uh, story. As they are going up, uh, things get a little bit more slick. So they're going very carefully on the stairs. The stairs are wide and well-crafted. In fact, um, looking at the stairs, the one thing that they notice, uh, they really couldn't tell this on the stairs going down because all they really saw was the top stair and it was just frozen ice. But as they're going up these stairs, the stairs seem like they're built for someone somewhat larger than a human. Uh, and I don't mean like a giant, like nothing huge, but uh, it's a bit of a strain. You know, they're going up two stairs. One stair would be regularly what they'd consider two stairs. So we're not talking someone massive, but someone who is still definitely uh, taller than them. Maybe minotaur size, maybe even uh, ogre size, something of that nature. Something that's clearly bigger than a human that doesn't need as many stairs. It can take the bigger steps at a time. Um, in the rooms themselves, uh, while the walls appear uh, intricate in designs, nothing really, nothing like recognizable, just, you know, flowery type kind of stuff. They don't see anything that would appear to be belongings. There's no vases, no flowers, no dishes, no decorations, no tapestries. There's nothing there that would imply someone lived there. Uh, it just looks like a big empty hall with a mammoth statue that wasn't a statue. So they make their way up the, the stairs, which again, being slick and slightly challenging to climb, uh, it takes a little bit of time. There were some uh, there were some rolls to make sure nobody slipped on the stairs. Uh, it wasn't that hard. Everyone was successful, but it did make them go a little bit slower and careful. As they reached the second floor, um, instead of a large chamber, they actually kind of see a, it's a very small chamber, but it's rounded and uh, kind of rounded, like they're at the back of their tower, because it's a round tower, so they're coming up the stairs around the side. As they come up the stairs, the rest of the room is relatively rounded. So it almost, if you're looking down on it, it would almost be the classic shape of like an eye. Like when you draw an eyelid, 
know, when you're drawing an eye, you don't just draw a circle. You draw that kind of up and over to get the eyelid and the down and such. It's kind of that shape more. Um, and on, you know, what would be, I guess you'd say, northeast and northwest of those walls are two good-sized doors. Again, uh, you could almost say a Darsh-sized door. Darsh could walk in those doors, and even with his horns, they would not touch the ceiling. And it's at this point, looking at these doors, because they really paid the first doors, they, they seemed okay, regular large, but not that big. Looking at these doors, they're like, these doors almost look like they're even just a little bit too small for a, or too big for a darsh. Um, like a really big darsh. <laughs> like an extra large darsh might be able to do it. Uh, but the doors themselves, they investigate them. Uh, Artemis does cast detect magic to see if they're magically trapped. They don't have a rogue, so they can't do it that way. Um, hello, Wyatt. I'm doing well. Thank you for coming by. Um, so they can't regular check for traps, but they do check for magical traps and find nothing. Um, so they had to choose which door they wanted to go through. Um, and in this situation, the way I designed this, either door would work. They had to go deal with something on the other side of each door. Very classic dungeon light. There was no right door and wrong door. Both of them will get them where they go, but what they have to go through is going to depend on the one they pick. And they picked door number two. The door on the right. Again, surprisingly, going against the long, time-honored tradition of always going left first. They decide to go right. Um, and as they enter into the room, sure enough, on the other side of a relatively large room, shaped oddly, because uh, again, if they're going in the curved side, imagine the tower still goes round, but then a straight wall up. So they got a straight wall, their curved wall, and then another curved wall like this. Hopefully that kind of makes sense. If you're watching me, if you're listening to this, it's hard to, to, to explain, but it's again, two curved walls and a flat wall. And across the room are more stairs going up. Uh, another statue type dais is in the middle. Um, but they really can't tell what it is. The ice around it is much thicker. Um, and it almost just looks like a large white ball. Um, and at first glance, looking at it, they're like, it, it kind of looked like what they'd imagine a bear kind of curled up into a ball. Maybe hibernating or something of that nature. Alright, Michael, thanks for coming by. And they're like, okay, well, we have to get to those stairs over there. And we assume we get close enough, this thing is going to hatch, if you will. So they prepare for battle. The archers get ready to go. Uh, Michael and Danny prepare themselves. Michael and Mercy prepare, prepare themselves. And Mercy, of course, is the first one in to try to initiate. And sure enough, uh, the thing, again, has that shatter effect where the ice literally shatters around it as the spell that's encasing it. The ice is actually formed around the spell. It's kind of what they put up with or what they figured out. So when the shell shatters, it breaks the ice that crumbles to the floor. And the thing actually grows somewhat in size when it does that, because when that bear-like thing unfurls, it is not a bear, technically. What it is, is a very large arctic owl bear. Now, I've talked about owl bears a few times through the course of these uh, stories I've been sharing with you. Um, an owl bear, again, is a larger than normal bear with an owl type shape uh, uh, looking head with the classic beak uh, it's, well it has claws on its 
front hands they look a little bit more like almost like fingers like a like a, a bird's type kind of the rigidy fingers uh, it has one less than a bear normally has a little bit more like a bird's paws so the claws are even more talon looking uh, than a traditional bear and this thing's huge it's very very large um, for those of you who may remember callbacks to the past Minotaur love owlbear meat. Owlbear meat is considered disgusting by almost every other race. It has a flavor that just grosses them out, but Minotaurs can't get enough of that. Um, so immediately, uh, Artemis and Mercy are like, okay, we're going to find a way to take some of this meat back to Darsh and have Molly make him an owlbear pie. <laughs> what they, before we even got to fight it, they're talking about how you know, the, the young ladies that played Mercy and... Uh, Artemis are like, we're going to get an owlbear pie for Darsh for helping us out and all this stuff. So they end up fighting the owlbear. Now, the owl, an Arctic owlbear, a little bit harder to fight than even a regular one. Uh, this one had a little bit of a natural magic resistance, which was irritating, but they didn't really have a lot of spellcasters that did offensive magic at this point anyways. Uh, it kind of kept falling to that same strategy. Archers shooting as much as they can while the melee keep them... Um, Occupied, although the owl bear, still an animal, uh, is a little bit more intelligent in as much of, you know, it realizes the arrows are hurting it. At one point, it gave up on the little man and little woman that were poking it, and decided to turn on the archers, um, which then brought uh, both Lars and Nathalian to a more defensive position over Artemis, where they had to draw their swords. Again, skilled swordsmen, their weapons at this point um, had both had received magical weapons from um, Darsh and Mercy. All of Mercy's knights at this point had some type of magical sword. And usually it's going to be like a this sword plus two, this sword plus one, something of that they found that matches the type of weapon that they use. Seamus has a war hammer, so he uses a, uh, he has a big magical war hammer they found, stuff like that. And Darsh the same way. Nathalian had uh, didn't have a magical bow, but anytime they came across magical arrows, none of them used them, so he saved them for Nathalian. Um, so Nathalian had a, uh, a little pouch of special arrows they'd come across throughout their adventures that never really had much cause to use. He whipped a few out in, in some of these battles because they were some, a little bit more damaging and such. Um, but they fight the Owlbear, and it's the same thing. They, in, with, with them attacking Lars and Nathalian, uh, that opens up Mercy and Michael to kind of hit it from behind. Uh, and I'll be honest, in that fight, uh, I want to say between Mercy and Michael, um, they had some of the most consecutively positive rolls I think I'd ever seen in the con. I remember that from this scene. Like, they were only rolling exceptionally well. Not just on their hits, but on their damage. And it, it took the Owlbear down a lot quicker than I planned on it. Um... I want to say this fight itself only took like four or five rounds of combat. Uh, they did a lot of damage very quick. The first round, not so much, but the arrows were. And then when it turned on them, Michael and Mercy just went to town. Uh, so the Owlbell fell pretty pretty quickly uh, without dealing much damage. In that fight, Nathalian took a little bit of damage. I think Lars took a small hit, but Nathalian took a little more. Uh, he, had, he had been injured in that fight by one good hit by the Owlbear. Um... And that was the first healable injury. Like, they had a couple they used light heals on. But this is one like, okay, this is bad enough. We need to use a decent heal on this before we carry on. And Artemis did so. Um, having to use one of her better healing spells 
instead of just a couple of the light ones. So they defeated that. And in this situation, even though they were on a timer, they did take the time to harvest some of the owl bear. And they have things like barrels and bags, and they wrap it up, put it in a barrel. They, they chipped a bunch of ice off stuff, and they, where the ice had cracked, they got it like ice and tried to pack it in ice and such. They were all smart, wrap it up in some cloth and such, and wrap it leather, wrap it in ice, and put it in one of their empty barrels they have. Because they always kept an empty barrel in case they needed to fill it up with water or something important. Um, <laughs> so they, they, they did that. Um, and they harvested some of the things like the the beaks and the horns and the teeth and things like that that might be beneficial to the mage. They took the time since they are doing it. Uh, Lars, again being a woodsman, uh, naturally good at that type of thing and did it relatively quickly. After doing the owlbear, they then proceed to go up the stairs again. Um, as they're going up the stairs, they can see that there's another set of stairs that merges onto it. Like, the stairs come up and go like this, kind of come up and turn. So they see that the stairs must lead down to the other room. They decide not to go down in there, and, and they don't want to risk triggering whatever other thing might be down in there if there was something. They did not go down in that room, nor did they ever need to, uh, but there were two full-size snow tigers in there um, that they did not get to fight. Darn. <laughs> so, um, it's kind of interesting, uh, just as a, a, a step aside in these situations, um, when I'm creating an adventure, I, I know the story. I know what they're looking for. I know that well ahead of time. I know the end goal. I know the process. And then I have to get down to breaking down how do they get there. Well, they got to go through this dungeon. i got to make a dungeon. So I designed the dungeon physically first. Um, in this situation, I designed the layout of the towers, designed the rooms, and then made a determination of what I was going to put in there. Um, and again, like I've talked about, for as a DM, justifying why the creatures are there uh, is important, right? There's a mammoth. That mammoth wasn't just wandering around in a room for 50 years. It would have died of hunger. So having a stasis spell um, as the kind of conduit to keep these creatures at bay, um, each one that they've been fighting have been... I guess you'd say animalistic. Like there's not like I'm not fighting anything intelligent at this point, you know. Um, but they're they're fighting something that appears to would have been captured from the same area. Mammoth, tigers, winter owl bear. It's a theme that I got to play with, and I got to go through the monster manuals and books and look for monsters that would have been found in that type of a terrain. Um, and that's kind of fun because it lets me bring in sometimes creatures they don't normally get to fight. You're not gonna run into some winter mammoth things in the desert, you know. <laughs> well, first worlds you might, but um, just to kind of look behind the curtain there, that's kind of one of those things that I do in this situation. I was excited because I got to go through, and I'll, a lot of times I'll write down the name of 20 different creatures and then find which ones best fit the situation and fit them in as needed. Uh, but they then continue up to the third floor. Now this floor... You'll remember I mentioned that this is a very, very high tower. Uh, unusually high for the thinness of what it is. Um, and this room uh, gives a good glance as to why. The room is incredibly high ceiling. Way up there. Nathalian might, at points, with his bow, he could probably hit it. Uh, but there's no nobody with a throwing weapon could hit it. It's too high for a throwing weapon to reach. Um, the room itself, again, as they're going up, 
as you would expect. The floors are getting somewhat smaller and smaller. They're not getting bigger. So this room, while it's way higher, isn't quite as big around as some of the other ones that they'd already been through at this point. And there were no pillars holding up the ceiling normally, but there were pillars built into the wall. So imagine if on the wall there's like a lump sticking out, like a rounded lump, like a pillar's carved out of it. So these are going around the room. So if at the top, the ceiling, there's not as much in the middle, but there's extra support around the extra edges. This would allow for more strength to hold up what's above it. Um, with it being a thinner room, they don't need as much in the middle. Uh, the ceiling is enough to support that weight. You'd be crazy how much time I look at frickin' ag uh, architecture books and things when designing stuff, just to make sure it seems slightly realistic that it would work. Back in the day, I haven't had to do that in a while, but I've done it a lot. In this room, they see no creature. There's nothing encased in ice, there's no pedestal thing. Um, the room looks much like the others. The walls are carved and decorative with things like you'd expect. All the symbols you'd expect to see carved in. Flowers, sun, fleur-de-lis-like and things, you know. Runes, glyphs, but nothing recognizable, nothing verbal, no hieroglyphics with pictures of animals, nothing of that nature. It's, it's just more like floral type kind of stuff. Um... Ashley says, I greatly appreciate the authenticity of your research. I try, right? Uh, I want... Basing, basing it on realistic things um, sometimes helps me to be able to say, okay, imagine a building looks like this. You may have been in a building like that. If I'm pulling it from our realistic architecture that we have, um, then it's sometimes a little easier for people to understand. At least in things like this. When I'm doing a dwarven mine, there is no architecture for an underground dwarven kingdom. I get to do whatever the hell I want there. <laughs> Although I'm still very careful to make it seem somewhat realistic, right? Um, so they're up in this room here. Um, and on the other side are, again, stairs that start on the bottom and seem to go up and wind their way up. And then there's a... You can see where they finally hit the floor way up high. You probably go those stairs and takes you into the next floor. So there's another floor above this. The fact that there are no creatures in this room made them worry even more. Because now they're worried, okay, what if this is a magical trap? What if there's a regular trap, but we don't have a rogue? Um, it's possible. I have done that before. Put in trap Because again, you know, when someone builds traps, they don't know if there's going to be a rogue there or not. They're assuming it's a trap. Uh, there's times I have had situations where Dandy's not with them, but yes, there's traps that they could set off and they have no other way of avoiding it. They're going to do it. Um, uh, if it's a magical trap, Dandy doesn't matter if Dandy's there or not, she's really not going to be able to tell. But they don't find any magical traps, because once again, Artemis burns through some of her detect magics, which she uses quite often, and was running very low at this point. The floor appears completely clear. It seems smooth. All the things they would expect to look for, there's no pressure plates, there's no tiles that would look like maybe something would move or press in. They're checking the walls for holes, anything that might shoot something out, spikes or arrows or darts. Uh, there's nothing that appeared the walls would move. The walls were literally the walls of the tower. There are no rooms here. So it's not a situation where, you know, a wall could come moving in. There is no wall to do that. The whole tower would collapse. So. They're like, eventually, can't find anything. 
start to make their way across the room. And they hear that shatter noise again. Uh, but they hear it. It's not as loud, but they hear several of them. Now immediately, because they were already prepared, they had their weapons out ready for something, start looking. And nothing happens. Looking up, they're looking around, looking at the walls. Is there, and then they're like, you know, they, they get Artemis in the middle and they kind of go back to back because their thought is, what if something invisible was here? Which potentially could have been a concern. There are creatures and monsters that have a uh, invisibility as a natural type of skill. Um, it's not undead, at least, that they can assume, because Michael sensed nothing. Um, but I'll tell you why there wasn't anything invisible. Because the one thing that I've stressed on every level is that when the shield or the spell that kept something stasis, the ice that formed around the thing shatters and falls off. If there was something invisible, there would have still been ice around it. To be honest, I mean, just from a realism point of view, the invisible thing wouldn't have been the one thing that ice doesn't form around. You're invisible, but you're still corporal. You're still physically there. You can touch an invisible thing. If I can go through you, that's not invisible. That's a whole other issue to deal with. That's, we're getting in the realm of spectral at that point. That's a whole other set of monsters. But invisible still means you're physical. You're fighting something invisible and you throw a bucket of sand at it, there's a good chance you're going to know where it is for a little while because that sand's going to be all over it. Um, there are magic spells that are exceptionally good when used against creatures that are invisible. Glitter dust being my favorite. Exceptionally good at finding invisible things. And Nathalian and Artemis' keen ears do hear a little bit of what sounds like ice hitting the floor. But not much. And it comes from several different directions. But no big invisible thing. So they're waiting around looking. And they're about the point where they're ready to start moving towards the stairs again. When Artemis, or when Artemis gets shot. Artemis cries out in pain and actually falls to her knee. Um, there is an arrow sticking from between her neck and shoulder in relatively deep. Mercy and Lars, both carrying shields, as they do, immediately pull their shields up to try to cover Artemis, uh, while Michael and Nathalian attempt to pull the arrow out so Artemis can heal herself. The arrow itself, they find, is an arrow, but it's com it's completely got ice around it. Um, and so it's... And it's very, it's almost like a dry ice. Touching the arrow is painful. So it's burning Artemis as it's in there. Um, and so it takes them a bit of, you know, they, Michael luckily always has leather gloves on. Michael always wears gloves. For, it's an undead thing. He's always covered everywhere. They're all dressed up warm anyways, but Michael's gloves, he his stuff's pretty tough leather so that undead teeth and claws can't get through it. He has an undead hunting gear he wears all the time. Um, so his thick gloves, he's able to kind of grab it, and, and it doesn't... You still feel it through his gloves. It's cold, but it's not as bad as, like, a regular gloves. And he's able to pull it out, but that causes a little bit more damage. Thank you, Riles, for the subscription. I appreciate it. Um, so it's a... You know, it causes a little more pain, and Artemis has to actually roll to see whether or not the pain is enough to make her pass out. It was not. And she begins healing herself, and at that time, more arrows start coming in. 
they see the little things flittering around the room. Um, and they are gremlins. Arctic gremlins, to be exact. Little flying creatures. Um, not like cool movie gremlins, but they're more like the, you know, thin armed with the wings. Almost look like little bat creatures. Um, and they have little tiny bows, so the arrows are small. That was something that they didn't really, that we kind of touched on a little bit. I didn't, they didn't really ask that. But they do, once they get the arrow, they realize the arrow itself is on the small side. It's half the size of one of the Italian's arrows. Um, and they're flittering around relatively high where it's kind of shaded in here. Again, there's, there's you got to remember, there's no windows in this tower. And that's something I, I probably have, should have mentioned earlier, I should stress, but there have torches, right? There's no windows they're in an, a fully encased room. So this room being as high as it is, is very shadowy up there. Even though they can just barely, with the torchlight, see where the stairs go. Well, now they, the movements and such are going on. Um, they, of course, now get into a bit more of a defensive position, get against a wall where they can kind of use the shields to protect the others. Um, and it's in this situation where uh, Nathalian kind of takes the lead. Uh, Lars tries shooting a few arrows, which he can, but um, he has a hard time seeing them. When he sees one, he can he manages to, to get a couple little hits in, but um, eventually uh, they decide to go ahead and t put out the torches. Um, they put out the torches, and then after but a moment, Nathalian's um, dark sight comes in, right? It's dark vision. So as that goes in, even though it's cold, even though they're arctic creatures compared to the freezing tower encased in ice these things have some warmth to them <coughs> which means nathalian can see them in fact they're pretty obvious to him with the, such a cold in this situation because again unlike the current fifth edition uh where dark vision is different than what infravision was back in the day infravision was a lot more like predator vision with the, the lights and such, like the different temperatures giving the different lights and shapes. People who live in that, it's to them, it's they can, they get great detail out of that. Um, but in modern Dungeons & Dragons, dark vision appears to be even though it's dark, to you it's like it's a relatively lit area. Which is intriguing to me how that works. And can you read in it? I'm still looking. I don't know for sure. But can you read with dark vision? In Infravision, you couldn't, because there's no heat to the ink. That's uh, why even creatures that lived in the Underdark, like the Drow, uh, the only ones that ever had lights or had their eyes adjusted to any type of light um, were mages, because they would have to study their spells, just like any other mage, and to scrolls and things of that nature, you, you had to be able to see what you were writing. Um, so there's that. Um, but Nathalian kind of takes the lead here, and uh, once he's able to see them, once he's able to narrow it down, turns out there are five gremlins. Um, and I think it took like seven or eight, like he's firing his arrows, he can shoot two per round. I think it took seven or eight arrows to get all five. Um, because when he's aiming for them, they take a certain amount of damage. If they take enough damage, they die. If they take a l some damage, then I have to... Um, uh, roll to see whether or not they, they're able to stay in flight. And a couple of them weren't. You know, A couple of them took damage enough that they hit the ground. Um, which normally 
would be a problem for most of them, except for Mercy, who, remember, has that circlet on her head that gives her modern-day dark vision, which did exist, the dark sight. To her, it's like an okay-lit room. And so she goes huffing over there, and she starts squishing. <laughs> she leaves her shield with Michael, who's kind of protecting Artemis with it. Um, and then she just goes out there and just starts <laughs> squashing anything that hits the ground. Well, half the ones that fell just were dead anyways, because Nathaniel did enough damage. But the couple that land, Mercy, runs out, squish, goes back, runs under, hiding under the shields again, because they're still firing at Nathaniel and them, who's standing kind of with the shields around him as well, but he's kind of, imagine the shields are at stomach height, and he's kind of standing out of it. Everybody else is crouched below. <laughs> and, uh, Another one falls. Mercy goes, runs out, squishes it with her Morningstar. Goes on running back again. Uh, but finally, they're able to take all of the gremlins out. Uh, it was more of an... Uh, it did uh, some very good damage to Artemis early on. Um, and I, they... Gremlins are intelligent. They aimed for Artemis. Uh, but only one hit. They weren't the best aims. Um, yes. Uh, where were we? Here we are. So, they make their way up the next set of stairs. As I said, this room's very tall, so it takes a while to get up to the top. Because again, they're very slick, and the stairs still uncomfortably large to climb. When they get, they of course lit their torches back up. Because Michael doesn't have any, neither does Lars. Neither of them can see anything. Um, so they, uh, they have their torches back on again. And they make their way back up top. When they get to this next room, they immediately come to a stop. For across from them, sitting on an incredibly large throne, is a frost giant. It does not appear to be moving. Now... This throne or chair that he's sitting in looks very out of place in this tower. Well, the tower was very stone, almost like a white stone marble kind of thing, uh, but a bit grayer. Um, very smooth, except for the decorations and the carvings. Uh, the chair to be appears to be made of like large wood and leathers and such, more of a um, I would say a commoner's looking chair than a throne per se. But an incredibly large chair that would hold that is obviously built for this creature. Um, the clothing that it's wearing and such match the same type of thing you'd expect. Um, it would you would expect someone dressed like that to be sitting in a chair like that. If that makes sense, you know the, they're dressed in their own woolen clothes and big furs and skins. Probably mammoth hide such. You, you'd expect them to be dressed in that. Um, as it's sitting there, it's got one hand kind of like this. And there's a big axe. So he's holding it upside down. The axe is touching the floor like it's just resting there with his hand on it. Uh, and the thing doesn't appear to move. Even from where they are, they can see it's encased in a layer of ice. Um, not only does the frost giant in the really big chair look out of place here, uh, but there were no doors or stairs that this thing would have fit in. At all. This frost giant is too big for the room that they are in. And at this point, they can tell they're at the top of the tower. Um, it's still a very large, tall room. The frost giant could probably could stand up and move around decently. 
but it wouldn't take but two steps to be wall to wall. It's not. It'd be a small room to him. It is male, by the way. I should say that. Um, so they're like, well, that's going to be a thing. Like, obviously, we know that's going to be an issue. If we uh, if we go into this room, pretty sure. We're going to hear that shatter thing happen, and that frost giant's going to stand up, and we're going to have to fight a frost giant. And we don't have a Darsh. <laughs> Darsh would be a... Not, not, Mercy's, Mercy's thinking, not knocking any of my allies. They're great people. But man, I wish I had a Darsh in this situation. Uh, Darsh's size definitely helps level things out against uh, giants, even though he's still small to a giant. A lot less small. Um... Even Dandy, with her backstab ability, if they could get her on the back of the giant, might be able to do some serious damage. But uh, the thing is in stasis, so they can only assume, like from looking at it, if it's like any of the other things they fought, that it's alive. So Michael's not sensing any undead because none of these things are dead. They're alive, they're just in stasis. And the other, fir- the other thought that they have, because they talked about this as they're making their way through this tower, there was no door big enough for that mammoth to fit through. There is obviously no door or stairs big enough for this giant to fit through. Thank you, Blake Lowe, for the sub. I appreciate that. Um, which means, A, the tower would have to be built around them? Probably not. Or B, something had to magically put them there. Makes sense, considering they're in some type of magic stasis spell, that something relatively powerful has frozen these things in stasis and put them in this tower. But why? Again, they haven't come across anything that they would consider lootable. Not a single item that could be picked up. Everything is just stairs and floors. This chair is the first piece of furniture that they've found. Um, So they've not come across any treasure per se. But if this is in fact the top floor, they have to assume at this point that... The Staff of Winter has to be somewhere nearby. That's what they were sent here for. Maybe it's... Maybe the giant's sitting on it, for all they know, you know? They have absolutely no faith they're going to get over there without that thing waking up. So they start planning early. And they planned well. Um, again, they start... They light a fire. A small fire on, one, a fire on one side. They start wrapping arrows up with pieces of cloth so they can use... It's a frost giant. Fire is what you use against it. I mean, fire you can use against almost anything that's not a fire creature itself. But against cold-based things, fire is beneficial. So they have that. They get their arrows out. They have plenty of time to figure out how they want to fight this thing. All the time in the world, as long as they didn't go into that room. They stayed very close to those stairs because they didn't know how close was too close. Um, And they set up the thoughts. Mercy and Michael are going to try to kind of go into the room and split and not be in one place to try to pull its attention two different ways. Uh, in one place, it could just do one big swing and maybe hit several of them, and, and they don't want to be in that situation. Uh, so very often, like Mercy and Darsh do, they decide to split. Um, Lars and Michael will be using arrows. Sorry, Lars and uh, Nathalian will be using arrows, of course. Um, but the instant it looks like melee is an issue, Lars is going to drop his bow and come in for melee as well. Again, by doing so, this frees up Nathalian to make more accurate shots. Um, and help keep attention away from Artemis, who's going to be standing next to Nathalian. A little bit behind him. So, they're like, okay, they get all prepped, ready to go, and Michael and Mercy start making their way around the room. 
very carefully around at the same speed watching each other pacing themselves so one doesn't get too far ahead in case it does pop up and attack one that you know there's one who's blatantly in, in the target uh, and sure enough they get halfway around the room before the, sh the shattering sound of the stasis spell breaking is much louder because that's a whole lot of ice and the ice just tumbles down and around the chair the hill giant just kind of shakes its head more ice comes out of its huge beard and hair and it looks around and it for just a moment it looks confused like it it doesn't know where it is or why why is it in this small room it's looking around a little bit and that's the first feeling they get like it's like what the hell am i doing here and then looking down he sees them and much like most creatures in that situation I'm going to assume it's your fault that I'm here. <laughs> I'm here and I don't know why. But you're here. It's probably your fault. So angrily, it rises from its chair. You can hear the chair creaking under its weight. The giant stands up and pulls up his axe. And combat begins. Um, now, frost giants, uh, many of the frost giant abilities um, aren't going to be beneficial to it in here. Like throwing rocks and grabbing a tree and using it as a club. Some of the stuff that it would be common uh, giant combat, uh, it does not have access to. Plus, giants historically, even with their great size, uh, are very likely to make an ambush where they can throw big rocks and stuff and do as much damage before having to get in close because they don't usually walk around with a whole lot of magic loot. A frost giant, though, is definitely a couple steps above your regular giant, your hill giant. They're much more intelligent. Uh, they're larger. They're stronger. Um, and they're better geared. This one's wearing armor. It looks like a very tough hide armor, uh, but it is wearing an armor. Uh, making the class read Artemis Fowl. Yes, I've come across that. Artemis is a female in mine. Um, and there are a lot of cool Artemis characters out there. In Forgotten Realms, uh, Artemis and Trary um, from the Dritz Stewarden seri series of books uh, is a phenomenal character. Um, but the young lady who chose Artemis uh, as the name for this character had never read those. So she just a name that she liked from somewhere she heard. So they proceed with their stuff. Artemis, as Artemis does, has reached into her little pouch and starts fiddling with her rings. If you remember, there's been several times I've mentioned that Artemis collects magic rings at this point. This is kind of like Dandy collects magical daggers, uh, unless it's a ring that really would benefit going somewhere to somebody special. If it's an extra kind of ring, a lot of times Artemis takes that. And by this point, she has a small pouch of accessibility. Uh, a pouch of holding, much like a chest of holding, it's a small pouch, but has much larger space inside. A pouch of accessibility, not necessarily. There's really not that there's more space inside, but whatever you're reaching in to get, you always get that thing. So in a bag of eight magic rings, she's like, I stick my hand in and I pull out a ring of protection plus four. That, she doesn't have to search for it. She reaches hand in and she's going to pull out whatever ring she wants. Um, once they found that bag, Dandy was using it for a little while until Artemis started collecting the rings and Dandy gave it to her. And so she has several interesting rings uh, at this point that she can use in certain uh, combats. Most of them are defensive. Some of them help spells. Some of them, she has a ring of free action. So underwater, if webs, she's fine there. Ring, I think she had a ring of water breathing. 
Ring of Fire protection. She had a bunch of different rings, but you can only wear one magic ring on a hand at a time. That's it. If you wear more than one ring, it cancels each other out. They won't work. There are a few very special rings that in their description will specifically say may be worn on a hand with another magical ring and neither ring will, su will suffer any type of negative. That in itself is usually a huge power of a ring. Um, if you find a ring that's just a simple ring of protection plus one, but it has that on it, that's a big deal. So I got a ring of plus protection plus five. That's the highest they go. I stick another plus one on there. That's more than anybody else is going to have, you know. So rings like that are very beneficial. She did not have any of those at this time. Um, I do have a couple that I've designed. And maybe they'll show up eventually. She'll give me a little bit of ring. But she has a couple rings. So um, uh, she she switched. I remember she switched out rings to something specific. Uh, she had her, some type of ring of protection that was going to help her against some type of cold-based attack. It wasn't specifically for that. Uh, was some type of ring of defense. And now she'd swapped out one of her rings for that one. <coughs> Excuse me. So, battle goes on. This is their boss fight, clearly. Uh, the fight uh, takes a while. And the giant does some damage. Uh, there are no pillars to kite around. It's just one room. And while the giant doesn't have a ton of room to move around, he's not getting huge sweeping attacks, um, there's not a lot of places for them to go or hide either. You know, he takes one or two steps in any direction, and he's with them. Two steps, and I'm at Artemis. Two steps, and I'm at Mercy. So it's... Thank you, Millie, for the sub. Going to click a button real quick on the computer while we're looking at this. Um, so... <laughs> I just hit 14,000 subscribers. Millie was my 14,000th subscriber. It takes a little bit for the clock behind me here that keeps track of them to update because uh, YouTube has to refresh the signal to it. Uh, but Millie, I was, I've been watching them pop up. Millie was my 14th thousandth subscriber. So thank you very much Millie and everybody else who's hung around my channel this whole crazy time. <laughs> and let us get there. So yeah, that, that'll probably pop over sometime tonight. And maybe sometimes even an hour delay. I'm not sure how big the delay is. Sometimes People pointed out, and I'm like, oh, there it is. But I didn't know. Um, but yeah, so. Plus, there's always a chance someone could drop, and I could go back down to $13,999. It does fluctuate sometimes, but yeah, it's still pretty cool. 14,000 subscribers. I've been watching all day as I've been getting closer to it. So just wanted to mention that for on today. What is today? June the 3rd. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Um, <clears throat> so. Uh, the battle proceeds, again, the, there are some definite damaging situations. Uh, Lars does enter into melee contact uh, relatively quickly. Um, it's very, very apparent that the giant is going to be more than just Mercy and Michael are going to be able to handle in a melee range while keeping it focused enough to stay away from Artemis. Uh, how long is the stream going to be? That's a good question. Why? I normally go for two and a half to three hours. Uh, so we've got about another hour and 15 minutes, usually minimum. Uh, if I'm in a spot that I need to go a little further to get to a stopping point, then, you know, sometimes I'll go a little bit longer. Sorry, my wife was feeding the kitties. I had to show her where I put the treats. Uh, <laughs> so, 
So yeah, we still got a little bit of time to go on that. So we've got plenty of time for more Doom. Poop and Doom, that's what we called it back in the day. All right, so. All right, well, again, thank you guys for being here in the very moment that I hit 14,000 subscribers. I'm pretty excited about it. Hey, babe, I just hit 14,000 subscribers. Heather? Yeah. She's very excited for me. Not really, she doesn't care. <laughs> She's feeding the kitties, it's fine. Um, so, the battle takes a while. These things are, again, they're not stupid. Very quickly realizes there's a healer. That changes, you know, the, and the fire arrows, Nathalian and Artemis have to start getting mobile very quickly. Um, and Nathalian has to lessen the amount of arrows he can shoot because he's also trying to keep Artemis defended. And at times, I mean, even your giant, there's a, there's a cleric over there, and I want to kill that cleric. I still have three people stabbing me or smacking me. With, again, Mercy's using the Morning Star in this situation, but um, stabbing and all that kind of stuff, you know, it's still irritating, and you've got to deal with the thing in front of you, right? Um, when it came to magical items, Nathalian used several of his magical arrows that I mentioned earlier. He had... Uh, he had like a chunk of arrows that were like plus one arrows, and he uses those all the time. But he had a couple, he had like four, three or four plus five arrows, which is five, uh, and then he had an arrow of exploding. Um, and I want to say that he had, let's see. It wasn't a fire arrow, I think it was an acid arrow, um, which, is, which is much like the magic spell Melf's acid arrow. Um, when if you're if a successful hit with the arrow works, the acid will actually get in the bloodstream and continue to do damage for several rounds. How long has this campaign gone? Uh, Thirty years, something like that, since I started Merged Worlds. This actual, these characters, um, they were about twelve years of it, ten, twelve years of it, I'd say. Again, sometimes there'd be four to six months time period in a year where we didn't get to play. You know what I mean? I'm, I don't want you to think I played every single day for 30 years. There was times when I moved from Canada to the United States that I didn't play for almost a year this, but I was playing like remotely over the phone with friends back in Canada until I taught people down here to play. Uh, but yes, overall, the story Merge World started 30 years ago. Or D&D started 30 years ago. Merge World started between 28 and 30. It was just a couple years after that. Good question, though. Thank you. Um, so let's see. So he his his arrows definitely helped. Um, Lars again once entering into melee combat. Lars uh, really did some heavy lifting in this fight. He he rolled well because um, I'm playing him, but I'm rolling him his accurate stats. I'm not cheating him or anything like that. Uh, saying, "Oh, he did more damage than he did." Now he just had some really good rolls. Um, I want to say that, if I remember correctly, the real telling moment for the fight, though, uh, is when Michael rolled a natural 20. Um, and he rolled sever limb. You cannot sever a frost giant's limb with a spear. It's just not possible. Hmm? Okay, just sit right here. Thank you. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you know, there has to be a little bit of common sense there. Um, so, I'm like, okay, so what he did do was hamstring it. He hamstrung a leg. That 
leg almost basically becomes useless. You know? Um, what was that? Uh, it would be the 30th anniversary of restarting Merge World. So something like that, yeah. Because I started playing D&D &D, uh, when I was 11. 12. 11 or 12. So that would have been 91. I already been reading the books for that point. 90 or 91 is when I started playing. So, but again, I played several years before Merge World actually became a thing. I originally it was just generic one-shots and some pre-purchased things that I bought. I didn't start forming the concept that was Merge Worlds until 92 to 93. No, exactly. It would have been 93 to 94. It would have been 1993, because that's the year that I started hanging out with my friend Scott, who played Ray Fireman. And we, I taught him how to play D&D very soon after we started hanging out and became my best friend in high school. Uh, so 93 would have been when Merge Worlds officially began, even though I didn't know it was going to be Merge Worlds. The first year of that was just the stories of Fire Moon was what it was based on. But uh, then it moved on from there. So that would have been, yeah, that would have been 92. 93 is when it would have started. So technically next year would be the 30th anniversary. You're 100% you're on there. The numbers are completely strong. But I started playing in like 1991. Okay. With the hamstring, uh, the giant basically, if you know anything about a hamstring, sever that tendon in the back of the leg, you don't get to stand on that leg anymore. Uh, which means the leg almost cla claps under it. Now the room is small enough to the giant that he just doesn't fall flat on his side. He's able to catch himself kind of on the wall. So he's on one knee and the other one's kind of on his foot. So he's not on two knees. He's you know, kind of like in that position with one knee down, one knee up. And he's still swatting, but that slows him down. He can't keep turning. At this point, he was having to pick a target uh, and Michael became that target. Michael took a few really big hits after that hamstring. But the hamstring meant everything because at that point... Um, thing had a lot harder time maneuvering, had a harder time hitting, had much, wasn't able to do as much damage because it couldn't bring it down, so it had a bunch of negatives to that. But the hamstring, uh, hamstring was a good move. But eventually, after multiple rounds of combat, this was one of the more longer drawn-out battles that I dealt with, with them in a while, um, they managed to finally take down the giant whose body comes crashing to the floor, which again, they have to dodge. There were some rolls involved, but everybody made it. And uh, the giant now lay upon the ground, much like uh, a small hill, because, you know, at points they have to climb over it to look around the room, um, or around it. You have to go all the way around it and such. Uh, so, immediately, they decide to loot the bodies, because that's what you do anytime you fight something intelligent, right? Um, and they didn't find anything of value. Um, because again, a very common question that's popped up for me in the years of playing D&D &D is what do giants use for money? If they use a gold coin, then wouldn't a gold coin for them be worth 100 or 1,000 gold coins for us? If you look at the size, giant's not going to pull out a coin this big, is he? And he's going to have his size coin. Um, so, unless they're fighting a giant who has recently attacked a caravan and they find several chests of coins that it was it had taken, they just find a giant out wandering around the world. If he has a wallet, does he have a big coin in it? Or does he have a bunch of little tiny coins? 
I usually avoid coins in those situations so that I don't have to answer that question. Because I'm not sure which route I'd go with it. What are they going to do with a gold coin the size of a wagon wheel, you know? It's not going to fit in the chest of holding. I'm going to roll it home. I'm going to try to break it, melt it. I mean, it's gold. It's bendable. You might be able to fold it if you really wanted, Darsh wanted to hammer at it. Or Darsh's strength, you might be able to do that. Squeeze it in the chest of holding. Um, but, you know, <laughs> you have a card? Yeah. yeah. It's the world's largest visa. <laughs> That's funny. Uh-huh. Anyways, they didn't find any loot of appropriate size. Obviously, uh, they don't worry about is his, are his boots magical? What does it matter? They're not wearing them, you know that kind of a thing. Although historically, uh, magical rings are supposed to change size to fit the wearer. Um, uh, so very often, um, you may find a larger creature with a nose ring or an earring that is, in all actuality, a regular finger ring for a regular-sized person. Um, because some rings can be worn that way. So if they pierce it through their ear, which it's a loop, I don't know how they do that, but if they did, put it through a nose ring or something of that nature, then uh, you find a nose ring that's really a regular finger ring for you. So there's that. So with the defeat of the frost giant, they, uh, after searching the body, begin to search the rest of the room. There are no more stairs leading out. Everything led to here. So the understanding is somewhere in this room should be the Staff of Winter. Uh, and it takes them a while to find it. Um, the chair itself was sitting on... Oh no, the axe was way too big for anybody to wield. The axe was the axe itself. I mean, if you imagine that this, this creature is approximately a Frost giant, if my memory serves me, are approximately 18 feet tall. So if you're an 18 feet, 18 foot tall person, right? And you think about that, versus a six foot person. So this person is three times the size, which means his battle axe is three times the size of battle axe that a six foot person would use. A six foot person not going to be able to pick up and wield that weapon effectively. Even a Darsh who hits. 11 or 12 feet, you know, before you count horns, would be hard-pressed to... Strength-wise, yes, but in actually maneuvering it effectively, wouldn't make any sense. Would make a heck of a trophy if, again, you had a way to get it home. Way too big to fit in the chest of holding. Uh, so, uh, let me see here. Glyph awarding on a creature. Uh, no, I do not believe so. I believe glyphs have to be on an inanimate object, if, I'm, if I remember correctly. Um, so what else so yeah so they did that they, they end up searching it takes them a while to find the Staff of Winter but it is in a um, not so much a hidden compartment uh, but a locked compartment and the compartment itself is sitting underneath that big old chair uh, and nobody in this group is exceptionally strong again a great situation to have a Darsh the chair was also very heavy, and it took a while for them to be able to push it. Luckily, the ground was slightly icy. Uh, they were able to push it enough to get it off of the compartment. <laughs> hey, Buffy. Ashley says hello. She's eating her treats. At night, for some reason, she likes to eat her treats up here next to me. The rest of the day, she doesn't care, but at night, she likes to be up here. <laughs> so, um, yes, yeah, so, so they managed to find it. And the floor has a compartment that is locked. Um, and it takes them 
<laughs> some bashing of Mercy's Morningstar, after Artemis searches it for magic, finds that it is magically defended, and she has to disable that magic spell, which she's able to do. Uh, although I will say that when she did it, it it took a lot. Um, the implication there is when you're trying to dispel someone else's spell, uh, you have to take into account what their level is versus yours. If I'm a third level creature casting Dispel Magic, probably not going to dispel a spell cast by a 20th level wizard or cleric. Just not going to happen. Um, and Mer Artemis is no slouch. At this point, she's pretty high up there. Um, and it took casting the spell twice to do it because it was not easy for her to pull off. Uh, so something pretty magical, obviously, put all these things here. Um, they managed to find the Staff of Winter. Uh, and literally, they pick it up, and it's cold to the touch. Not like painful cold, but like you just took it out of the fridge. Of course, for all intents and purposes, they did. The whole thing's places ice, they chip it off and such. But it always feels like that. One downside of the Staff of Winter is it must be kept in a sub... It must be placed in a sub-zero temperature environment for at least one hour every 30 days. It has to be placed in an area where it is freezing uh, in order for it to maintain its power. And at that point, if you don't, then its power completely stops working and you can't use it again until it hits that uh, temperature for at least 24 hours. So if you don't make it within that... Uh, you know, Cycle, you're boned. That never really... It's something I'd mentioned. It's part of the specs of that artifact. I created it. Um, but, you know, there's that. After that, looking around the room, um, once they found they're looking at, they find in other areas on the floor what appear to be more compartments. Kind of like that one. They find that when Artemis casts her Detect Magic spell. Uh, they had to pick which one. They picked the one underneath the chair because it was the hardest one to get to because they know me, and yes, that was the one they wanted. But had they tried the other one, there's a chance that something else was in those. But to be honest with you, Artemis was about clean out of spells at this point. Uh, all the healing and stuff she'd had to do and the detect magics and things, she did not have any mojo left to try to disenchant any more of these doors. Kind of one of the reasons I led them towards the right one, as I am a loving and benevolent lord. But that meant they had to leave stuff behind. And that drove them crazy. So, uh... They, uh... They're like, well, we don't know what's in there, but this one has an artifact known as the Staff of Winter. What the heck's in these other... Because there were two other compartments. Um, one in different sectors. They're almost like, uh... Like, like one's on, pointing towards one wall. And then, like, north is the one they went to. Like, they come upstairs from the south. There was one compartment that you lift up. In the left and right. And, and when you lift it up, it was like in a... Inside was like a, like a velvet kind of texture. It's laid in there, like almost like you'd expect a display case. So they're like, well, do we stay here and rest up and try to get our spells back and get these other things? And run the risk that whatever put this stuff here comes back? We've broken its stasis spell. It may know we're here at this point. Whatever it is, especially in our current state, we may not be able to fight. Or do we just go ahead and leave? And they decided at this point that they were going to go home, uh, that they had what they came for, and as much as they hated leaving other magical loot, 
Um, they didn't want to take the chance of you know being slaughtered by something and failing the quest altogether. So Mercy breaks open or unscrews the top of the hourglass given to her by Tobias. She's begins sprinkling it on the floor, and within just a moment, a portal opens. And they proceed through. So, that's kind of the exact same spot where Darsh left off. When Darsh and his crew opened theirs with the portal and walked their way through. So, Team Darsh actually makes it back to Serenity a couple days before Team Mercy. Uh, Darsh and them did a lot of traveling, but Mercy and them spent a lot of time stuck in places. They spent a couple days stuck with the Sorials, the, the dinosaur people we talked about. Spent another day stuck with the um, dwarves, you know, waiting for the next day, the travel time in between. So they just kept getting stuck in places where they didn't get to move forward until the people were ready. Um, so that was kind of a, a, a thing that took them a little bit longer. Uh, but Darsh returns uh, in his crew uh, by about two days before uh, Mercy does. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, no, since they get back when they return, of course they enter into the main chamber of um, Serenity, the main uh, hall again, the same place they left from. Uh, Tobias is there as well as King Ulrich and all the other homies that are hanging out. Um, people are very happy to see them. Of course, right? Uh, Lucas is ecstatic that Artemis is back because it was driving him crazy that he did not get to go. Um, but I think I remember telling everybody that the children were going to stay in the keep while Artemis and them were away. Um, and so uh, uh, Tobias is basically protecting the keep at this point. Uh, so Lucas has been at the keep since they left. He was not going anywhere where the, ki the kids weren't. Because if he can't be there to protect Artemis, by God, he's going to protect her kid. Uh, so he's been there the whole time with the remaining Knights of Serenity and Ulrich. Or no, Ulrich left. I'm sorry, it wasn't Ulrich. With the remaining Knights of Serenity. It was Quan that was left in charge, not Ulrich. I apologize. Ulrich was in the first group with Darsh. A day or so later, of course, Mercy's group returns again. Everybody very happy at this point. All of our main four characters have made it home. Um, Tobias takes the Staff of Winter. He says, that, yes, give me that. Thank you very much. That is important. I must have this. This is the key part of our, our chance at success in this. Darcy's is like, yeah, I got you this lance. And Tobias is like, yeah, you hang on to that. And he's like, what? He goes, no, that's something that you need to keep. You need to make sure you keep that. And he says it like that. No, that's something that you need to keep. On you. <laughs> Darsh is like, okay, well, guess I'm going to need this later. Now I'm carrying this around. So uh, it's a lance. So it's a little bit longer than normal. But he does have that... Um, it's not a quiver of holding. It's basically a quiver of holding that he keeps his javelins in. He takes a few javelins out and he's able to put it in that thing. So while it looks like just a big arrow quiver, it actually has javelins and a whole lance in it at this point. The lance made of bone. So it's the... the the quiver is the same distance around all the way into the magic, but it's just deeper, so you can put longer things in there. And it doesn't even have to be that. You can put a sword in there, you can, big piece of wood you find on the ground. It's just a thing of that shape. Um, but he usually uses it for javelins, because the other thing of it is you can turn it upside down and shake it, and things don't fall out. You have to remove them. Um, and no matter how long it is, 
part of it will always be sticking out. So if, if it's 10 feet deep and you have a 9-foot javelin, stick it in, a foot of it's going to stick out even though there's technically more space for it to go. Um, I'll be honest, Brad, I, I, while telling the story, I, I don't kind of want to get off the topic with that stuff too much. I would have to answer that a little bit later. Uh, if you want to hit me up in Discord or on a, on a, on a, a, a stream, like a, a different one, like a, a, a Minecraft stream, I would. Um, but for all the people who are listening to this from a different, like Spotify and such, who you're just here for the story. I try not to get too far on that. Yeah, like a weapon holster, right? It's designed like... It looks like a quiver. It's just very deep. So if you saw it, you'd think, oh, that looks like a quiver with some really big handles sticking out of it. Isn't that right, Buffy? Yes. Oh, you got a goopy. Give me that. Give me that. Good girl. So, um, they're happy to be home. Um, now, uh, the other thing, of course, they ask is, what about group three? Um, and Tobias advised him that he has absolutely no no idea. Uh, so he uh, he lost he lost the ability once they went through the portals. He lost all ability to track them until they're um, uh, they open up that that uh, uh, little hourglass. That's that's the magic that lets him know where to send the portal. Um, so there's that. Um, let's see. Right, Artemis is back. So, 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 basically, everybody gets back, and then a day goes by, and then a day goes by, and then another day goes by, so on and so on and so forth. Uh, and with each day, the group starts to worry more. Because they're like, well, we went and went through all that, and we got home already. Relatively close to each other. And the third group is taking longer. Um, I, I put in my notes here, allow PCs some time to worry, and then in quotations I put, mwahaha. <laughs> so that, that was the intention. Mwahaha. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, write, I write these notes to myself sometime, even though I'm the only one who's ever going to see them most of the time. Uh, so they're purely just for myself. right? Um, so there's that. Um, so, as I said, several days go by. Almost four or five more days go by. Um, it's midday on the fifth day. And it is evil, yes. I take great pleasure in that. Again, but it's great for the story. So, uh, on the fifth day, it's about midday. Mercy and many of the other friends are hanging out in the main hall. Um, Artemis, the kids are staying there right now. With everything going on, Tobias is staying in, in the keep. So Artemis and everybody's staying in the keep as well. Uh, at least until everybody else returns. They're kind of hanging out. And, you know, they're worried, but they're still, you know, dealing with stuff. Mercy's still running a kingdom. Ulrich's back. They're dealing with that. They just had a war recently. They're still, you know, keeping an eye on the front, making sure things aren't trying to attack the temple. Remember, all that stuff happened since the war as well. So they still got life to deal with. Um, and they're, they're trying to get through the best they can while most people are all kind of hanging out at the main keep. But about midday, and the doors burst open and Tobias comes rushing in, telling everyone to clear the center of the room. And he immediately starts beginning a spell. People get out of the way, they grab chairs. You know, kids might have been playing or people who in there. Grab chairs and get stuff out of the way and he begins casting his portal. Um, which he successfully does. 
literally within seconds. Oh, I should, I should, I'm sorry. Before we do this, let me remind everybody who was in that group, right? Because I, I think that's important. So in this group, group leader was Draven uh, with Danica, who's another human cleric of healing and Artemis's kind of, Miasha's a second hand and then Danica's after that. When it comes to the overall running of the temple, uh, when it comes to power, uh, Miasha and Kelvin are about equal. Um, but for actual authority, Danica, Kelvin does his stuff, but he doesn't have a lot of uh, uh, management roles, if you know what I mean. Uh, then there was Jorn. Remember young Jorn, Darsh's young lad minotaur, whose first real war was just recently. Uh, Devin, who uh, is another one of the Knights of Serenity. And then Flynn, who is the newest Knight of Serenity and uh, who was previously uh, Mercy's uh, squire. So he's been training under all of them for the last, all the knights and everything, for the last three or four, four years, I want to say it was. So he came when he was 15. That was back in one of the earlier battles against uh, Oramon. His brother was killed, and he and his brother were trying to come to the keep to say what was going on, and Mercy took him in as, as her squire at that point. He's been hanging out ever since. Um, but yes, after just a few seconds of the portal being open, Jorn comes rushing through. You, they can see that he's very injured. He's blood on him and such. He's got like a, a cut on his face under his eye. Didn't hit his eye, but it was awfully close. Uh, he's in rough shape. But he's also carrying Danica, who appears to be unconscious and also very, very injured. Um, oh, I'm sorry. No, I apologize. He comes through with Danica. Debin is who he's holding. I'm sorry. That's unconscious. Debin the knight is the guy who's unconscious and covered in injuries and such. He's bleeding. And uh, But Danica comes through and she does... And like I said, there's injuries and such. They're very, very in trouble. Right? So they're all very, very injured. Uh, injuries that potentially Danica might be able to heal if she has spells... They don't know the situation yet. But they come rushing through the portal. There's a moment of hesitation and nothing else happens. You know, Artemis you know, rushes in to immediately start casting heals, but she can't help but keep gl but glancing at the portal. Where's Flynn and where's Draven, right? To, they, everybody knows Tobias can only keep these portals open for so long. So it's important to you know, get through it quickly. Jorn comes in and barely sets Devin down. He almost falls himself. And at that point, Darsh, of course, is there. I mean, they're all there at this point. Uh, Darsh steps in and tries to you know, help catch him and help him set Devin down. Um, but Jorn, they, they can see that Jorn also has a large amount of uh, injuries as well. He's got stabbing, bleeding from all over the place. And Artemis is like, holy hells. And immediately you know, calls to someone to go to the temple and call for Miyasha. Because at this point, she's like, I'm going to need help. If this is the first three, I don't even know what shape the other two are in. I'm going to need help. Um, and of course, guards immediately go rushing out. Um, Seamus goes running to get her, probably more than anything else. Remember, they're a couple at this point. Um, again, a minute or so goes by, and Tobias is again appearing to start to show a little bit of strain at trying to maintain this portal. And it begins to flicker just a little bit. Like barely, barely a minute goes by. It seems like much longer to them, but it's, it's actually a relatively short time. 
Thank you, Canon419, for the sub. I appreciate that. Um, and just when they're, everybody's like, like no one spoke yet. Like Everybody's just kind of watching, and then Artemis is in there and immediately throwing a heel on Devin because they can, she can tell right off the bat at first glance she's basically a doctor right? in this situation. She can look at these guys and say, you need healing first. She knows that. She knows wounds. She knows where her magic needs to go first. And she jumps, and she's she's trying to cast this spell, and she's trying to focus on that, but her worry for Draven's in the back of her mind, but she's having to push that out so she can begin casting the spell uh, to at least try to f- keep Devin from dying, because he looks like he's about to die. Um, again, a moment or so goes by, and then suddenly, both Draven and Flynn literally come tumbling through, almost arm in arm. And they, and they, like, they tumble through, and they hit the ground, and they're sliding across the floor. Like, they were running and diving kind of a thing. But, like, literally, Draven's got his arms... Or Flynn's got his arms around Draven. And as they hit the ground, Draven just starts screaming, Shut it! Shut it! And he barely gets it out the first time before Tobias is, like, you know, canceling the spell. And at the last moment, Tobias's eyes go a little wide. Like, he sees something in the portal, and then the portal closes. Um, everybody's, every single one of them is in horrible shape. They've literally had the hell beat out of them. Uh, Draven, it's one of the worst he's looked since he fought his brother. And it's not easy to do that. You know what I mean? Um, Flynn is injured, although he, if anybody, has slightly the least injuries from the looks of it. But what they do have in their hands is the hammer. Because that's what they were sent to get. Uh, the Hammer of Truth, which is a, 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 a one-handed, it's not a big war hammer, it's a one-handed, kind of like a Thor-looking thing, kind of, uh, but not that same design, but like a one-handed big hammer. And it's made of uh, platinum and gold, it's, it's all metallic. It looks like it's made of soft metals, which is gold and such, um, but it's obviously magical, it's incredibly mojo. Um, very, very quickly, their clerics come running in. It's not just Miyasha. She runs in with several other ones. Because, uh, again, it, it takes like 10 minutes for a runner to get to the temple. Um, even if it's someone like Seamus who's at full speed. He's got to go around the lake to get there, you know? And then immediately, you know, they just start jumping on Miyasha, and then they're going to ride a horse. They're no slouches. Immediately some horses are brought out and they're just on them and Miyasha's first and other clerics come out. So Miyasha comes storming into the room. And again, remember, Miyasha's the, the tallest person in this room other than the Minotaurs. Miyasha's like close to... She's like almost seven and a half feet tall. She's big. She's a very tall lady. Even Seamus is short to her. But he is like the, sec, the tallest human she's come across. So it makes sense they end up together. Um... They come in and she immediately you know, joins Artemis in, in casting spells and they're able to heal most everyone. Except if you remember, healing spells don't work on Draven. They just don't. And you know, Artemis is trying to heal. She wants to go and you know, see, check see on him, but she has to heal the people she can. Uh, it's Mercy that steps up to him and she's like, how can we help you? And he's like, uh, he, he's like, I just, I need to be alone for a couple of minutes. And they're like, okay. 
That's fine. And he goes, there's a room, her war room, which we've talked about before. Mercy has a room off the main chamber. She has the map of Serenity and everything. It's where she gathers with the generals. Uh, Mercy points him towards the door, and he goes in there, and he leaves for several minutes. Um, and when he comes back, several minutes later, Artemis has got pretty much everybody else stable, um, where they're still hurt from hell, but they're not going to die at this point. Um, he comes back out, uh, and he's still injured. Still looks like he's had the hell beat out of him. But he's got a little bit of his color back. He looks a little bit stronger than he did a moment before. It doesn't work on him. Yeah, the healing does not work on him. That's one of the, uh, the downsides of the perks of his bonuses. Much like a vampire, healing spells don't work on a vampire. They're dead. You can't heal dead flesh. They have the natural regeneration that comes with their magic. But there aren't really healing spells for dead flesh. You can't heal that. You can regrow it. Regeneration will do that. And he has a very strong regeneration. Well, maybe not quite Wolverine style, but uh, pretty, pretty potent. Uh, but his sometimes needs a kickstart. Once everyone is kind of leveled off, everybody's kind of okay, everybody's sitting down. Devin's still unconscious. Uh, but they're like, okay, yes. Like, yeah. Right, but he's not undead. That's the kicker. He's not undead. He's a living person. He was born this way. He's from a race of, of people that are basically... Were, the, the implication I've given previously in the story is that his race are born that way and humans tried to get that ability and by using twisting you know, magic and such created what we know as vampirism from that. So they're born, they're incredibly long-lived, they live longer than elves on not normally. Um, they're incredibly strong, they have all the things you'd expect from them, but they eat food, but on their planet that they're from, their world, literally the fruit, the animals, the ocean, there's a nutrient that's in all of that that they take it in through regular eating and drinking. That nutrient doesn't exist in most of the of anything on any other world, except in the blood of some creatures. Not even all creatures have that in them, depending on their world and what type they come from. Um, so they are born this way, yes. And he is a half breed as well. Remember, his mother was a demon, basically, but demon, not like woo mystical demon, like, but the race of creatures that fall under uh, a demon. So he's also kind of a half-breed as well. So he has that as a kind of thing going for him that also helps. Um, but yes, so that's why the nutrient that's found in, in the blood of many humanoids, and some animals, you know. Animals, it's never quite as potent. Um, it's almost like the more sentient or powerful a, a, per, a creature is, the more that b the body has that type of nutrient. Uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, it's, it, there's a lot of backstory to it that I've covered some on here, but <clears throat> in the story side of us, when we played through this, I covered a whole lot of the genealogy and how that stuff works. Thank you, Ego O, for the sub. I appreciate that. So, yes. Sometimes he needs a Kickstarter. So he, he eats regular food and stuff. He still needs that. He needs those nutrients as well. Um... So he'll be sitting there eating a ham hock or a sandwich or, you know, fruit, just like anyone else. He enjoys the flavor of those things. But every so often, he needs that nutrient. 
he needs. To, it's, it's almost like I, I was actually talking about this with my friends today, uh, my my D and D group. It's uh, it's kind of like imagine if somebody is iron deficient, right? They still eat regular foods and such, but every so often they need to get an extra boost of iron, a shot or a pill. They need to take in that extra... They can still eat food like a regular person and so on and so forth, but they need another source of that one vitamin or nutrient because their body is deficient. It burns through that faster than maybe somebody else does. Um, so that's, that's kind of how his works. Uh, but this nutrient, which has no official name, I've never bothered to go that far into it. It's just it's magic, right? <laughs> I don't need to. Uh, but that's kind of how that falls in. Okay, so... While they have everybody leveled, Artemis, of course, finally gets a chance to come over and give him a big old hug and so on and so forth. Um, they have a they have a chance, you know. Mercy's like, okay, Tobias, Tobias sees the hammer and he takes it and he's like, excellent, yes, <clears throat> glad you got this. And Mercy's like, okay, what happened? And then they tell their and then Draven tells their tale. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> so. Uh, they were told that they would be going to a desolate wasteland seeking the hammer of truth. Um, Tobias was quite open and honest with the fact that he doesn't know exactly where they're going. His magic is, and his stuff has only led him to certain amounts of information. I know how to create a portal to send you. I don't know exactly what's there. I know a little bit of what's there. I know which kind of direction you need to go and what you're looking for. But other than that, you're kind of on your own. Um, so when Draven and his party step through the portal, uh, they find themselves in a hellish wasteland. There's no visible growth of vegetation, um, maybe some old dead trees and such, gnarled looking things. Uh, the sky is dark all, all the time. It's consistent, even when it's, it's not raining, there's still like lightning, heat lightning you can see in the sky. Not like big cracks come down, but you can see the lightning uh, maybe the the odd rumble of thunder. Um, it's very, very dark, and they're like, well, maybe it's nighttime here. It was not. It stays dark the whole time. Um, the only thing that they knew, it was stormy, it's windy and shit, and it's a hot wind. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable. They know that they were supposed to, once they go through the portal, they were supposed to head west. Um, in itself, normally, wouldn't be a problem. Uh, but there's no sun, so they have to struggle a little bit and manage to use some of... Uh, Danica's able to cast a spell that's able to point them in the direction of which way's west. Uh, and they're able to head that, that way. Um, and they travel for like three days. And the entire time they travel, they find nothing. No one living, no animals. Uh, they brought a lot of food with them, but they don't... You know, they don't have a chest of holding, but they're carrying a lot, and Draven's luckily backpack, he's carrying enough for probably three of them. And Jorn's carrying enough for, well, three regular people, but enough for Jorn. Still a minotaur. Um, but they're making their way in the direction west. And, and the ground is, at point, rocky. There's big ravines they have to find a way across. Uh, so there's times where um, Draven literally has to pick them up and jump them across places, which no one really likes that, but you can imagine Jorn, the minotaur, not liking the thought of little Draven scooping him up and jumping across the thing because he can't. Carrying Joran was a little bit more of a struggle for Draven, but again, Draven is exceptionally strong. Um, his lineage has given him that. Um, and to be honest, 
that's one the one benefit that out of everybody here, he's experiencing a benefit because he is a little bit weaker in the sunlight. You know what I mean? He's at, when it's nighttime or in dark areas, uh, sunlight does well. It doesn't kill him like it would a regular vampire. He does get a bit weaker from the sunlight. Um, so them being dark all the time is actually a boon to him. He's not feeling some of those negatives he feels when he's out adventuring where everybody else sleeps at the night and is up during the day. He would normally only be up at night like a regular vampire if he didn't have a wife and kid and responsibilities. Dang responsibilities. So they're heading west. <clears throat> After several days, like I said, three, three and a half days of travel, everything just seems to be getting worse. Again, they're starting to have to ration their water. There's nothing really drinkable. Danica has a spell that can purify water. They've come across several streams that definitely don't look drinkable. Um, but she believes she could. But she, they're kind of waiting. You know, they don't want to do that all and you know, blow spells when they don't need to. Because again, five feet from them, they could be in a fight, and she may need to heal somebody. So she's trying to hold on to those as much as she can. Um, and. They're traveling, and as they are, they, they do start to notice more trees. Trees are all dead, half of them limbs laying on the ground, they're cracked like they've been hit by lightning, or, or trees that are burned. They're just the shells of what were once trees, not a leaf to be seen. But they do start to pick up just a little bit. And then as they're traveling in the distance, they finally see something. It appears, uh, they're not on a road per se, but it does feel like a natural path. If you've ever wandered in the woods, sometimes an animal trail or the ground just happens to make a natural path so people or animals will naturally use it in that, which just then makes it more of a path. Uh, they're kind of following something like that. Definitely not a road. They haven't seen any signs of civilization, no buildings, no ruins, nothing like that at all. Not a living animal, not a bird, not a tweet, not a bug. Nothing. But ahead appears to be a figure standing on their path. They make their way closer, and it does not take very long for Draven to be like, well, yep, that's not a living person. That's some type of spirit. I can see through him. Draven has very good vision. Um, and so he, there, there are no elves in this group, if I recall. Uh, no, it's three humans, a minotaur, and a Draven. So Draven's definitely hearing vision. He's got all that stuff. He's like, okay, whatever that is, that's some type of spirit, specter, or ghost. Don't know if it's something we're going to have to fight. Be prepared. Uh, Danica's like, ha-ha! Ready to turn undead. It's her ability. It's a cleric ability. She's ready to whip that out. Because again, in every one of these situations, everybody's like, why am I here? Why is it important that I'm a member of this? Um, and in each fight or battle or puzzle or something they've come across, there's been a situation where someone in the party was the most beneficial person there. Nathalian was shooting the things up in the air. You know, Michael with the undead uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex, obviously, right? Uh, in the other trials, Darshan, the thing of strength, and you know, there's there's Dandy in the puzzles and the in the, the that kind of stuff and the uh, very uh, dexterous type of things they had to deal with. So there's there's a lot of things like that. So in this group, it's the same thing. You think everybody's like, okay, why am I here? Why am I the one that had to be here? Uh, because Tobias is like, I don't know. 
Because they asked, they're like, why does it have to be like this? He goes, I don't know. I only know that these are the people that have to go for there to be the most chance of success. I can't even guarantee you're going to succeed. But to have the highest chance of success, this is the group that has to go. Anyone else will ruin it. Anyone less will ruin it. His magic has told him that. He seems to have a source of information that he does not want to share. They caught on to that pretty quickly. Uh, of course, you know, it's been several hundred years since they've seen him in his time. And he's been doing a lot of traveling and magic stuff. So who knows who he's been talking to, right? As they approach this spirit, they see that the spirit is dressed well. Um, it is definitely a specter. You can see right through it. Um, and it is dressed very much in, in plate armor. It appears to be dressed well armored. And while it has a uh, the helm on and the face part is open, they don't see a face. They can only see a glowing eyes. There's like a just kind of like a shape of what would be the rest of its head. Uh, so the armor is relatively detailed, but anywhere where there'd be skin, it's more of just like a glowing shape of what where skin would have been. The specter tells them that they have gone too far and need to turn around and return. It's more epic. It's like, it's like, it's, it's like I warn you now, going further will only bring your death. You have come down the wrong path. Turn now and continue to live. It speaks common. At least they believe it's common. It's weird when specters and things talk because sometimes everybody understands it even though they all don't hear the same thing. They all get the same message. I like the way magic works like that. And they're like, well, this is the path that we've come for. We're here specifically looking for something. And they're like, what is it that you seek? And Spectre asks, oh, he goes, we're seeking something called the Hammer of Truth. And, you know, we're told it's this direction. That's where we're here. The Spectre shakes his head and almost sadly says, the lands before you are, are no longer for the living and are now the land of the damned. The hammer sits at the very center of this countryside in an old monastery. But you will never reach it. The guardians and protectors of this land will not take kindly to your trespassing. For death itself owns this land. And so they're like, so you're going to keep us from entering? He shakes his head. He goes, no. Moving forward or moving back, it's your choice. I, am only, I can only hear and try to warn you. Going in there will certainly be your end. But that, if that's the choice you feel you need to take, go ahead and do so. And they try to ask questions. They're like, okay, well, what's the, you know, how far is it, this and that? He goes, I can only tell you you're entering the land of the damned. And at its center, you'll find the monastery where sits the hammer you seek. But you'll never make it that far. <clears throat> and, it, and it's almost like when he's talking, every so often, he, if he had a face, you know what I mean? It's kind of like the way he's like... Kind of like, he keeps looking at Draven like, there's something weird about you, man. Like, you cannot enter this. This is not for the... Li there's something wrong with you. <laughs> like, like he could sign a sense that that bit of what makes va him vampiric. Because even though technically he's not dead, that essence, that's, that spark of that, almost like, again, with a demonic spirit, undead and such are going to recognize that kind of stuff. Just like Menandra could recognize that. It has the same taint as undead, even though he's not dead. But sure enough, they, they, while well, they appreciate your uh, 
you're warning us. We have to continue on. Uh, the lives of those we love could be in the balance. We have no choice. Baron said, well met then. I seek you best, though I doubt I shall ever see you in the land of living ever again. And they continue on. So, they <laughs> look at Drapes up. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> so, they travel on. Now again, the land they have to travel is way bigger than what anybody else had to. They had to travel much further. Um, and again, Tobias didn't know that. Tobias, where he set them down, he set them where they did because technically he could not have gotten a, uh, his portal closer to the hammer because of the things that protect it. Now again, it's been very, I've explained this previous and I want to make sure I kind of cover this again. He can't create a portal in some places because of where they are, but if you can get the hourglass there and pour the sand out, that basically boosts his ability. It's like a link that he can reach out and grab onto to create his portal. That's how those work. The sand that's inside of the hourglass is enchanted. Putting that, just pouring it on the ground once it reaches the air, no matter where you are, he can't see you, he can't find you, but he knows where that is immediately. And he can send a portal to that location, though he can only, because of the, sometimes it's hard to put magic there based on where it is, he can only keep it open so long. But that, it's that dust there that basically boosts that spell for him. And lets him know where to target it. So they travel in. They're going through here. And almost immediately, they start having to fight things. Um, and pretty much everything they fight is something undead. Um, but it's not like classic zombies or skeletons. Uh, it's things like whites, banshees. It's more of the spectral dead. Um, things that, honestly, are way worse than a zombie and things of that nature. Um, and there's many times through this that the group, you know, the, the NPCs hearing, the, my, my players hearing the story, because I kept saying this, but why didn't Michael go with this group? Why wasn't Michael sent here? There's reasons. But again... If you're, ever, if you're a dungeon master, you have to always make it clear to your players that sometimes when I tell you I can't tell you something, it's because if I do, it'll ruin the story. And there's sometimes you're going to want to do something and I tell you you can't. And you'll be, the players will be like, but I've done this before. Well, you can't do it now. Well, why not? I can't tell you. I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Sure, okay. You have an axe in your hand. You throw it at the wall. Do that ten times. Then one day you take the axe and you want to throw it. You can't. Literally, the ability, it's like it's not there. Your body just will not respond and let you do that. Why? You don't know. But something's causing it. Eventually you'll find out what that is and you probably won't be real happy about it. But something is actively keeping you from doing what you want to do. Players have to understand that sometimes they don't get the answers they want. They have to go out and find them. That's... My players learn that very quickly. <laughs> so... Um, let's see. So, where were we? So, the first thing that they ended up fighting uh, were several whites. Um, they do the. Devin takes a pretty big hit attempting to protect Danica uh, because the undead, you can imagine this that this is a land of the dead, right? And walking this land are several knights, and there's a draven, whatever the hell he is, that's going to, uh, that's, you know, that, that's going to stand out, even the specter's like, huh? You know what I mean? 
Jorn's a minotaur. He's a warrior. He's obviously a threat. The undead could give a rat's ass about any of them. This is the land of the dead. And there's a cleric of, the, of life. A cleric of healing. Walking through these lands. Might as well be a giant neon sign saying, come get me. You can imagine that. Anything in the domain of the dead would be attracted to that in a way that I want to destroy it. You should not be here. This is not for you. The same way if a, a white or a witchland can cruise into Artemis's temple, you can be sure the clerics are going to move forward to destroy that. Because that's not a place for that kind of thing. You know, that's just how these things work. Uh, so Devin uh, takes a big hit protecting Danica, but uh, was able to do so. Um, and they keep moving their ways through. Um, let's see. Make sure I'm covering all these notes successfully. So, again, this happens almost immediately. Uh, this is after the first spirit. So they just get going in and things start coming at it. You know, so on and so forth. They come at it. So they're fighting the, these whites and stuff within 40 minutes of passing that specter who warned them not to go. They're fighting that. And then... Ahead of them, they see a wall. In the center of that wall is a gate. And the path that they're on literally turns into a very old cobblestone road. And this wall, literally, nine, ten feet tall. Jorn could probably stand on his tippy toes and look over it. Draven could hop it easily. But when you look left and right, it goes as far as you can see. Which for Draven is far. There's no end to that wall. Just a straight wall in both directions. And above the, that area, on the other side of the wall, the sky swirls and looks very not happy with you. This is the entrance of the valley. And they have to pass through that gate. And so they reach the gate and find that it is magically locked, protected. They have to figure a way. There's, it's like a puzzle thing. There's runes and such on the door. And they have to figure a way through that. But not only is that happening, but the gate is protected by several shadow fiends. Nasty monster, undead type things, don't like living things. They attack as well. So they're, everybody's trying to do this, and several more. Every so often they kill one, because while their draven can take one out relatively quickly, they start coming more en masse. Then there's two, then there's four, then there's six. And Draven's like, okay, I can kill a certain amount, but now it's starting to get silly. But they're on this side of the gate. They're like coming to protect the gate, if you will. Imagine mentally that far off beyond what you can see on these walls, maybe there are more gates. And there are fiends protecting those. Someone's trying to get through a door, fiends from all the gates come here to stop this one. Most of them. I'm sure a couple hang out behind just to be on the safe side. But the magic pulls them, so they're like, no, we can't let something through this gate. Especially something alive. Or neon beaking sign cleric of life. So, while this is going on, they're trying to figure out none of these guys are mages. Right? Again, we have four warriors and a cleric. That's not good odds when you're walking into Lend of the Dead. This is really where you want some magic users, you know? Um, again, granted, some of these guys have got some skills themselves, but still. Devin is the one 
who kind of pushes everyone away and, and says, let me look at it, and starts working on it. And he starts, the runes are uh, kind of like, a, he has to slide them in different ways. There's different, like, grids of them and getting them into a position. And he's sitting there, and he's reading, and he pulls out a little notepad. If you remember, Devin is the scholar of the group. He's the oldest of all of Mercy's knights. He's one of the last ones to join. Uh, and he's probably in his mid-40s, which when everybody else is in their early to mid-20s, you know, that, that's, that's quite a big age jump. And he's the most, he's the strategy guy. He's the guy who's learned about this. Here's how we need to build a, a castle or keep that's going to give us the best defense. Uh, here's how we need to set it up so our supply lines are the best defended and such. He's their smart guy. He's still BA with a weapon, but he's also their smart guy. And so he starts working with that, and he's reading, he's taking notes and putting his stuff down while everybody else, including even Danica at this point, uh, who has her staff, is bonking, and they're trying to keep him, to give him the time he needs. And he's finally able to unlock it, and the gate opens. Um, and when the gate does crack open, all the shadow fiends kind of go back, and arch back like, oh, good, this isn't good. And everybody rushes through and closes the gate. Um, and they ask, you know, Devin, like, we know you're a smart dude, but that looked like magic stuff. How are you able to do that? And Devin tells him something that they never knew about them, that in his youth, Devin trained to be a mage. That was the path he wanted to take. Um, and he had begun the training of that. That's what led him as a scholarly life. Um, but then a loved one was killed. He left the school to go find it, found that he, the magic he'd learned was not going to help him. And so instead, he started to learn weapons and such so that he could then find and uh, avenge the, the thing he had to do. And by that time that was done, he was now had walked another path. But he still knows everything he learned. Could he cast a spell? Probably not. He could learn to do it pretty easily. He was at that point where he was ready to start learning. He probably had just started to get a couple cantrips. Um, but he's left that knowledge behind him. It's been a couple decades. I was back in his late teens when that happened. He's been a warrior now for 20 plus years. He's the exact equivalent of what a dual class character is. Uh, at least on the second edition standard. A dual class character is different from a multi-class character. A multi-class character means you have two, usually three different classes. You could be a fighter, mage, thief. And your experience goes towards all three. And when one hits a level, the perks of that skill can go up. Doesn't mean the perks of this one does. In many situations, you get the pros. So I'm of all three of them, this class gives me the most hit points I get to roll for. So I get the most hit points. At the same time, this one does the most damage. So I can do the most damage. I got my rogue skills. The downside to that is any limitation of one class goes across all three. I'm a mage. So I'm a fighter and I'm a thief. But I can only use staffs or daggers. I can't use swords or battle axes or none of that stuff. You know what I mean? I'm thief skills, so while I'm a warrior, I can't only wear the lightest of armors or else I can't use any of my thief skills. So those limitations kick in as well. That's how multi-class works. How a dual-class character works, if done correctly, is you are leveling one class. And when you get to that, you get to a point you want to take the other class, you start all over again as a level one of that new class. You lose all the abilities of the first class. You still have however many hit points you have, uh, your chance to hit, how strong you all that's still the same. But any abilities such as spell casting, thief skills, 
warrior skills, whatever it is, is abandoned. And now you're just leveling the other class. Once that other class gets the same level as the original class, you now have the skills of both, but you will only grow in the new class. The original class never gets stronger again. So wherever you stop being that class, you will never go higher again. But eventually you can get to use the stuff you'd already learned. So this guy's the techno that. He was doing a mage, the very low level of mage, when he switched classes. And then after a certain point, he's way higher as a warrior now. He got those back, the knowledge and the scholar and his knowledge of what magic stuff he learned. But he's not going to be casting spells. He hasn't done it in years. Uh, he could learn to probably do the very, very basic cantrips if he needed to. But that's not his life. He has no desire to do so. But that's why he was able to figure that out. And makes sense why he's there. Because out of all of Mercy's Knights, A, is the smartest. Uh, and B, with that knowledge, is the only one that would have been able to figure it out. Granted, they could have sent a mage. Um, but a mage would not be in a land like this where there's going to be a whole lot of physical combat. A mage is not going to be maybe as useful. Maybe. Something to think of. So they make it through the gate, uh, which was tough. They make it through. Uh, let's see here. Got that. We got through there. So they move through the gate, and now they are officially in what is called the land, was the land of the dead. And it's worse. They still occasionally come across the funky water, but at this point, Danica is having to purify it uh, to, for them to be able to drink it. Um, and they're on very, very low rations because they, 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 you, you can almost always carry more food. You can carry a giant bag of beef jerky, and that'll last a long time. Water's the hard thing to refill. But they're still rationing because they don't know how long this is going to go. As they're traveling through, they end up fighting multiple battles. They fight a tentacle death, which is literally tentacles, the equivalent of death, that come out of the ground and try to kill you. Um, it's, a, it's a tentacle death has a bulbous body. It's kind of almost like a, a type of a beholder. Um, but it can't fly. Um, and so in this thing, and it's, it's an evil thing, and it's trying to fight them, and they're stabbing. And finally, at one point, uh, Jorn just gets pissed at it. And even though it's tentacles hurt, he's gra he just grabs it and walks over and they're fighting next to him. He just takes it and he hurls it off this cliff. And it's holding on to him and he's just ripping off tentacles. And just, he's just, he's like, he's just getting, he got mad at that point. He starts throwing, he ended up throwing it off the cliff is how they survived that thing. It was kind of a funny way in detail he did that. Um, so after, again, more and more days of travel, uh, fighting many different spirits and ghosts and entities or representatives that would match death. You know, things that would fit, again, me going through the monster manual and finding things that fit this motif but trying to shy away from the classic undead that you always use. Your zombies, your skeletons, you know, I, I didn't want that. I wanted a different level of undead. And <clears throat> so we brought that in. Now, they reached the official valley because they were in technically the valley of death but they reach a point where it literally dips down and they can see that down in the center of this valley is the, an old monastery. It's blackened. It's almost like it was burned by fire and parts of it crumbled. It's, it's partially ruins, but still in relatively good shape, right? But, so it's sturdy, uh, but Draven could probably kick a hole in the wall. I'm just saying it's not as strong as it used to be, but it's still maintaining its shape. It's not all just rubble and ruins. Uh, well, thank you, Wyatt. I appreciate that. <laughs> so, not only... 
do they see that? But the valley is filled with the spirits of damned warriors. And I don't mean like those damned warriors. I mean like warriors of the damned. Warriors who are damned to not pass over. Maybe it's because they failed in uh, their whatever they're working on. Maybe they're honor-bound to do something. They swore to protect a thing and failed. Um, maybe they were cowards. They ran. Maybe they died because of that. But for whatever reason, the spirits of, damned, of the damned are now here protecting this monastery and what lies between. Death is using this. Now remember... Death is a person, is a god. Helana, goddess of death, exists. Right? Um, she is a uh, <laughs> fickle mistress. Uh, but technically, anything in this realm at this point falls under her sway. Um, and every time they fought undead, technically that would still fall under her sway. But these ones more so, because these aren't things that have been reanimated, these are the dead in their new forms. You know, a white or a tentacle death, whatever that is, these things may have been regular beings or creatures, but upon death became these new things. Unlike a zombie or skeleton, which is just life put into, even a lich, life put into a corpse to allow it to keep living. That still falls within the realm of death, but not her forte. These are what she would choose to protect something important. So they look down and there are hundreds of them. And while they're spirits, you can tell they're all different. They're not all the same work. Plate mail, that one looks like whatever, uh, some type of uh, minotaur thing. Most of them are human. I'll say pretty much all of them look human. Maybe some half-orc kind of things in there. But most of them are humanoid. Uh, but some look like they're plate males. Some of them look like they're more tribal, wild-type kind of things. Uh, some of them may look Viking-like. But there's all of these different types of... Or just mingling around the valley, wandering around. Not speaking, but just unable to stop wandering. Even in death, they are never allowed to rest. So they're like, okay, we're going to have to fight our way to this thing. There's hundreds of them. First thought was, maybe Draven should go in by himself. Only because he's so fast, because he is, he's got that vampire speed, maybe he could literally zip in, grab it, and go. Um, but then they're like, well, the problem is, is if he gets in there and gets stuck, and he's got that hourglass, we're stuck out here, we've got no way to get to him. We have no way to get home. So they determine it's best if they stay together, even though it's potentially more dangerous. Draven doesn't want to leave anybody hanging out behind. And again, these guys are pretty healed up at this point. She's been keeping them healed after the fights. But the whole situation has kind of got you down. You're in a land of dread. You don't have the highest of spirits at this point. And while they're planning this out, Danica is just kind of sitting there looking over the valley and then her, her mouth is just kind of like she's talking to herself and, you know, they figure maybe she's doing a spell or something. They, don't, they kind of leave her alone and they're talking, we could do this, we could do that. What if we came to that side? It looks like there's less, but there really is no pattern to how they're moving, but maybe if we came down from the west side, it'd be easier to get in. If we look at the monastery, there's a doorway down there. It looks more secure. Maybe there's a place we could, you know, hole up and defend ourselves, keep them to a doorway so they don't have to fight them one at a two at a time, even though there's hundreds, you know. And they're trying to figure it out here, and they're, they're going through it all. And they're coming to plan, and Dana, Danica 
Danica just she says something and they they kind of hear her say something but they don't know what it was except Draven who hears everything and she whispers I remember this I know this and they stop and Draven walks over and says what do you remember what do you mean she's like I, I feel like I've seen this before this is familiar to me a dark valley spirits of the dead protecting a monastery this I know this from somewhere and Draven's like, okay, well, you know, we're not in a rush. They're not coming up to attack us. What do you remember? We start towing over. And she starts thinking and talking. And Danica, who I haven't told you this part about Danica, but it, this is the first point where it becomes pertinent. Uh, Danica is a cleric who lives with Artemis. Um, and while, you know, at the temple, she's Artemis's third-hand man. She's older than most of the humans. She's, again, in her probably mid to late 30s, where Miyasha is uh, just a couple years uh, she's probably in her mid-twenties. Uh, Artemis is in her hundreds and such. But if you were to stand next to her, you'd think, oh, Danica's older than her. And mentally, you could almost say she is from the experience in the way humans age. But Danica came to the temple because her family had died. She'd lost all of her family. I, I want to say it was a, if I remember correctly, it was some type of a plague situation. Um, and she was off at a temple training or helping and so on and so forth. And when she returned to her village, um, everyone she knew and loved had died of a plague in a very short period of time. Um, so she just kind of wandered a little bit and find a temple, stay there for a while, but never really felt like that was a place. Every time she was there, she just remembers her family and how being in a place like that, uh, if she'd been home, maybe she could have saved them. There's a lot of regret there. Um, and then she ended up in Paxawal. And came to Sister Mara, and they're talking, and she talked about this with Sister Mara, you know, Sister Mara being you know, the head of the clerics of healing there, and how she felt like she didn't fit in in Paxiwell as well, and that she, she thinks she'd be leaving again soon. And that was when Sister Mara goes, there's a group convoy that'll be traveling north and going through a portal to a kingdom of Serendi. There's a cleric there named Artemis who has a temple. I'd like you to go there. I... I, I, I I don't know if what you seek is there, but I think that maybe she could be of help to you. Danica's like, okay. And she got with Artemis, and uh, she went up there, and, and it just it, things seemed different there. The way Serenity worked as a whole, how she was able to help so many people and such, uh, it kind of brought her bit back to that. And she took solace in the temple and very quickly started moving around and, and ended up staying there. Um, but she lost all of her family, um, husband and children, and all of that uh, years before, like in her, again, 10, 15 years before this. So it's at this point that she's thinking back, um, and she says, I remember, a t she goes, she, she, she kind of gets that light, that light bulb, and she's like, it's a story. I've heard this story before. My husband, I remember my husband telling it to my son. She gets that little tear, of course. My son, uh, when he put him to bed, uh, one night and, and told us and we were trying to make him feel better, he had a bad dream, whatever and it tells of a uh, uh, see, a son that there was a pure-souled warrior trying to reach the gods he came across um, he, he was trying there was a pure-souled warrior, a hero who's trying to reach the gods to bring them uh, the word that mankind needed help and to try to get the gods to, to come back he was a, a one who truly wanted to represent the god and help the world and he came 
to a valley filled with souls of the damned who were protecting the doorway to the gods. And standing there alone before the souls of so many warriors, he could only weep at the lives lost and the sorrow that he saw in the faces of the, the spirits around him. And instead of fighting them, instead, he honored them. And the spirits, being honored, taken aback. They were surprised. Just such long lives of torture and suffering. Here is one that instead honored them. Instead of, you know, condemned them. And the spirits were able to break their oath and let the noble warrior pass so that he might reach the gods. As I remember that story, he goes, I haven't thought about it 20 years. But I remember that story. And Draven's like, okay, well, you know what? You're a cleric. You're a healer. You've been helping keeping us alive and turning undead. But maybe that's why you're here. Maybe that's why you needed to be here at this point. This is, this is something only you would you know. That. So how do we do that? What do we do in this situation? How do we take that knowledge and use it? How do you honor them? And they start to talk about it, and they're thinking about it. And Jorn's standing there, and he's looking at Danica, and you can see that Danica's kind of got the tears in her eye because he doesn't know about her loss, but her talking about her husband and son, which she'd never brought up before, he gets that feeling that she'd lost him. And you know, she, he's kind of looking at her, and Jorn's a young guy. Like He's like 17, 16, 17, 18. He's, he's just a young warrior at this point um, who's lost most of his family except his mother. Um, and so it's one of those things where... And Darsh at this point has made him part of the clan. He's actually taken him in and said, you are now part of this clan. You, are, you still have your name. They didn't change your name, but you will become one of us. You're part of this, and his mother as well. And that is a huge honor for him to be taken in, especially by a clan is at this point a family that's as high-ranked nobility-wise as Darsh. Um, that's literally adopting you kind of thing. So Darsh sees himself as a cousin, a brother, or a son to Darsh. And he sees Danica going through, and he does, there's no love life for uh, Jorn at this point. Jorn has no, nothing like that. His life is all about helping and serving with Draven and all of the political stuff that he's involved in. Um, but in that moment, Jorn can only think about his people and his dead and the spirits of that. And Jorn begins to sing. Uh, it is very common, especially when fighting or in war, for Minotaur to sing battle hymns, battle chants, things of that nature, going into war. And Minotaur is surprising. Very deep baritone kind of voices. Uh, very lovely voices. Like, they sing very, very well. Uh, it's one thing I've always liked about that part of Minotaur is that people are, ah, beasts and such, but musically, dwarves have a bit of that too, but even more so Minotaurs, that they, they do that. And very often, the songs are uh, you know, asking the dead and their... their, their uh, their ancestors to, you know, stand by their side and, and help them be victorious, or if not, at least lead them uh, to glorious end kind of thing, to die die in battle in the most honorable way possible, because honor is everything for Minotaur. And he starts singing, and he gets louder and louder, and everybody else just kind of stops and starts looking at him. And he's just singing a battle hymn that he knows. And as he's singing, all of the spirits just start kind of looking up the valley and are staring at him. 
And he just keeps singing. And they start moving towards them. And so the rest of the party's like, well, if this doesn't work, you've just pissed off several hundred ghosts. But they start coming up the valley. They only come to this and then they stop and they kind of become a crowd. And they're just watching and they're all just kind of standing there looking up Darshan, or at, uh, at, at Jorn and no one's moving forward. And Jorn just continues to get louder and singing and, and so on and so forth. And, you know, he's singing, thinking about his ancestors, his lost father, so on, something like that. <clears throat> and, you know, he's even a mentor, he don't care. He's getting the tears in his own eyes as he's singing about, you know, the end he hopes to have, how much he wants to honor Darsh, the loss of his own father uh, when he was young. All that stuff hits him and he sings and he just starts walking. And as he walks his way into the valley, the spirits just part and let him through. And the rest of the group come after him um, and let them all through. Thank you, Epic Penguino, for the sub. I appreciate that. So, as he's going through, as they, they go through, as they're passing the spirits, you know, Draven is being cautious. He's watching for a move. He's not got his hands on his weapons, but he's ready to draw. You know, he's letting everybody in front. Jorn's in the front at this point. Everybody's there. And he's kind of at the back, so if they start coming from behind, he's ready to jump on this. But he starts to notice that as he's passing them, the spirits are starting to fade. And by the time they get to the bottom of the hill and they reach the monastery, they turn around and look, and there are no spirits left in the valley. But they find themselves standing in front of this monastery. Now, we've only got maybe 10 or 15 minutes left, so I'm going to go ahead and finish this part of the story. So we, we'll, we'll run 10 or 15 more minutes before we end this. For those of you asking for my streams tomorrow, there are two. Uh, there's a Minecraft Let's Build stream starting uh, from 11 a.m. Eastern to 2 p.m. And then uh, JEI Project Minecraft is tomorrow night, 9.30 p.m. to 1 a.m. Eastern. So for those of you who are asking. Um, but they get there, and our sense, you know, Jordan gets a little clap on the back from the other dudes, the warriors and such. Because like, wait, well, you know, good job, kid. You know, that kind of thing. Now they're staying at this monastery and they have to go inside. So, when they get there, the doors are open. They're not closed. Uh, like I said, Darsh could probably, or not Darsh, Draven could probably just kick his foot through a wall. It's an old monastery, relatively well built. Um, but it's in ruins at this point. But the gates are open, the doors are open. There's nothing keeping them from going inside. And they enter in and make their way through a, a large central chamber. The monastery is not huge, but they make their way through to what would be a center chamber. And in, in the center of this room is literally a pedestal. And floating above it, hammer side down, is this hammer, the hammer of truth. And they're like, well, cool, let's get that then. But wait, about that time. A portal, much like the portal they walk through, suddenly appears on the other side of the hammer, the other side of the room. And a creature steps out. Now this is not just any person or any creature. What they see is a death's minion. A death's minion, for all intents and purposes, is the Grim Reaper. It is literally the the minion of death. And they are not weak. Uh, 
for for this thing to show up, they have gained the notice of Helena herself. The goddess of death has sent this here to deal with this problem. Confident that it's only going to take this one. And she could be right. The creature steps through and begins speaking to them in a voice that's very echoed. When he speaks, as he's getting to the end of the word about to start the next one, it's like the word's being said again by a second voice. And the spirit tells them that you, he tells them that they have dared to enter a forbidden place, a place where death rules and the living are not to venture. Not only have you walked through lands with your cursed living touch, but your cleric has desecrated this land with her magic. Every spell she casts is a healing spell or a life spell. You have brought the curse of the living to the land of the dead, and that is not to be tolerated any further. The goddess herself has determined your fate, and you have been deemed sentenced to death. And it begins walking towards them. Draven shoots forward. Swords are out. Didn't even see him. Just the swords are in his hand suddenly. Comes in for attack. And it just bats him with the back of his hand. Moves faster, just as fast as Draven does. And Draven goes flying through the air and hits the wall and it cracks and crumbles and rocks falling around. I like to bury him, but you know, enough that part of the, you can hear part of the wall falling behind when he hits the ground. Shocked. Slightly hurt, but more caught by surprise. And death continues walking directly at Danica. At this point, battle is ensued by everyone. Um, While the thing is incredibly strong and fast, they know this now a little bit better. Draven gets up, trying to get back into combat, so on and so forth. Um, So... Danica immediately starts casting every blessed spell she's got. Anything that's going to boost them and protection from evil, protection and such of that nature. She's, she's casting these spells that are anti-death. Granted, it's only going to make the thing matter, technically, but it's also the strongest stuff she's got against it. Because she can look at this thing and she's like, I've got no hope of turning this. There's no way in the world turning undead is going to do this. Standing here in this area, Artemis wouldn't be able to do that. Because we're literally standing on the equivalent of the Serenity Temple, but of death. This is death's land. I'm standing on their temple. My spells are weakened. Theirs are stronger. There's no way I'm going to turn undead in their temple. It's just not going to happen. So, Jorn, Debon... What am I missing? Oh, Flynn. That's the other one. Jorn, Flynn, Devin. They all jump in. This this is a situation where it's like, you know, clerics, 
Danica's going to help, but she's not going to be able to knock this thing away. Mage might have been helpful, but what we got are four warriors, and that's what we're going to use. So Draven comes back in, and all four of them enter melee combat. Um, and their whole goal is to keep it away from Danica, you know, and not die. Because it's there to kill all of them, but it's mostly angered at Danica. Again, like I discussed earlier, if this thing walked onto their temple grounds, it'd be the exact same thing, but opposite. Um, and while there, again, everybody there has magical gear of some kind. I've already mentioned that Darsh and Artemis and Mercy have made sure that their minions have gear. The gear's nowhere near as good as theirs is, of course, but nobody's walking around in crap armor. They've got some type of magical... Most of them have some type of ring of protection, if not plus one, plus two. I think only Ulrich and Michael have higher than that, if I remember correctly. Uh, they've all got magical weapons. Jorn's got magical weapons. Darsh had, had, had got for him. Um, just all this stuff is going on. And they are very, very hard-pressed not to die. I mean, it, even though they run into combat, immediately they're almost all on the defensive. The thing is fast. And it is using kind of like a scythe. You, you'd imagine it. But it's not quite as long and it's using it more one-handed. And then the other hand, it's literally reaching out. And if it touches them, it deals damage. It burns. It's literally doing the opposite of heal. It's, it's hurt. It's literally using magic to cause pain and to cause death, right? If I can cast a spell that will heal a wound, it can cast a spell that will cause one. And it's able to do that and melee fight at the same time. Because it's not casting a spell, it's using a natural ability that it has. Which is why it's able to do both. Very often people will say, okay, well, come on, I can't swing a sword and cast a spell. Because you're casting a spell. They're using a natural ability that they have. They just trigger it. There's no words, there's no flourish, there's no finger magic. It's something that they can just do. A natural ability works differently than a spell, even though they can very much mimic the same type of effect. <clears throat> so he's in there chopping and hacking and cutting and, and, and just doing a lot. And they're taking some big hits. Um, uh, Devin takes a very, very big cut. Uh, he, I think it was, if I remember correctly, the hit came in and Flynn took a hit and stumbles... And the minion is reaching in for him, and Devin kind of gets in the way, and the thing just turns and grabs Devin on the chest, and just full blast with one of those spells. There's a cure light wounds and a cure heavy wounds. There's also a cause heavy wounds, and just hits Devin, and Devin just coughs, and you can see blood come out of his mouth, and he just falls backwards, just literally the equivalent of wounds appearing under his armor. There's blood starting to seep out and around, and he hits the ground. The thing raises its weapon to come down and finish him off, but then Draven's in there blocking that, and they're still in there. So now, Devin is crawling out of combat, because the other ones are just trying to hold this thing bay. They just lost one of their guys. To get to Danica, Danica immediately starts throwing some healing spells, and as soon as she does, thing focuses on her again. And now, while they're fighting, it's moving the combat closer to Danica. If you've ever seen a fight in a movie... They're fighting. They don't just stand in one spot. It moves with the battle. Well, it's on the offense. It's making them move, and they're backing up while fighting, and it's steering them towards Danica because that's its that's its main goal here. It's going to kill all of them, but it has to kill Danica. That's 
That's what he's here for. More than anything else. At one point, the thing, Draven grabs its hand with the sickle. Now, it's strong, but so is Draven. And they're struggling, and Draven grabs it. Because Draven, one, he dro- had something happened where his, one of his swords goes, because he's dual wields. Lost he grabs the hand of the minion to try to keep it from going even further. And it's trying, and, and you get one of those things where Draven's strong, but you can see it's slowly moving in death's favor, right? Draven's holding it best he can, but Draven's slowly losing that arm wrestle kind of a thought thing. It's going further and further, and the, the being has no real face and features, just like shadows of features, and the shadow of like, just like a smile, like, oh yeah. And it's one of those things where as he's pushing, the sickle's getting closer and closer to, to Draven. You know, one of those things like when someone's trying to hold the knife and it's getting closer. It's something like that. When all of a sudden, this just fist hits the minion square in the face and it stumbles back a little bit. And it lets go and Draven's able to jump back a bit. And the thing stops and it looks and Flynn had just hauled off and punched it square in the face. Just because his weapon had been knocked. He was trying to get it. And he trying to it fell on the ground. And all he could do in that moment is just as hard as he could. And he's wearing plate gauntlets. The guy's got armor on. Flynn's well-armored. And Flynn uses a two-handed sword. He's the only one of them that uses a big-ass two-handed sword. But <laughs> he just hauls off and punches this thing. And he's not the he's not Seamus, but he's got a build to him. And it's enough to knock the thing back a bit. You know, Kind of like when that punch of the bad guy where it stops from it and there's a little bit of blood on his nose. He's like, how dare you? Kind of thing. I mean, that's the effect of it. Not enough to really do anything more than just surprise it. Like a slap in the face. And it looks at Flynn and actually says, you dare to strike death itself? Like, literally, like, you dare to put your hands on me like that? And Flynn just laughs. Just <laughs>, laughs. He goes, and he, look, he looks at me, he goes, he goes, you think you're scary? You should try waking up my lady in the morning. And then just comes back into her fight. Because that's his thing. I've, I've for Episodes and episodes, I've always said that no matter what's going on, Flynn's scariest thing he ever had to do was wake her up early. He's like, you think you're scary? You should try fucking waking up, Mercy. Before it's time to get up. Trust me, you're not that scary. And they, and then it just redoubles, and then they're all kind of back in. And just kind of the, the just that laugh thing was enough to Draven smiles. And they all, and Jorn's, Jorn doesn't understand it, but he knows he made a joke. And like, you could tell everybody's laughing. Jorn's like, ha And then they're just kind of all back in again. Devin, still in very bad shape. He's, she's managed to kind of help him some. Uh, and he's trying to get back up into the fight, but he's still really hurt. She's like, you should stand back. He's like, I can't. And he comes back into the fight again. But he's slow, and sure enough, within just a couple more rounds, he takes another big hit, and Devin's back out again. Back on the ground from another major wound. He's trying to help, but he's really not that much. I'll be honest with you, I was rolling Devin, and Devin had a couple really bad rolls. He really did. Everything's going crazy, and, and Darsh or not Darsh, Draven is like, "This isn't working. We're not beating this thing. We've got to find a way around this." And he he very quickly reaches into his pocket and throws something past Death, across Death to Flynn, who Flynn naturally reaches up and grabs it. And in his hand, he has the hourglass. 
And he yells at Flynn to open the portal. Flynn nods, doesn't think twice. And who doesn't have time to screw it? That big sword just smacks the end off the thing and the sand falls out. And as soon as it hits the ground, within just a couple of moments, it starts to swirl and they see the portal appearing. Draven starts hardcore coming in. It's just him and Jorn at that moment. And Jorn takes a big hit. Big cut square across the chest. Piece of his skin kind of flips out a little bit. You know, it's hanging down a chunk of meat. His blood starts seeping from it. He it cuts through. He's not wearing a lot of armor. The Minotaur doesn't wear a lot of armor. He's got like you know, shoulder stuff and things. But it's still a cut across his chest. Master Heap number four. Appreciate that. Master Heap just is fourth month with us as a member. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's one of those things where. Uh, he gets a big hit and he's back and he's trying, he puts his hand up because he's trying to hold his chest from ripping open anymore. And Draven just tries to go in a little bit crazy attacking at that point. And, he, and it works enough that the minion has, Death's minion has to focus on him for a second. And Draven's yelling to Jorn, get them out of here. Get them out of here. And Jorn is looking at it and he, he sees what shape they're in. Whether they at this moment, Jorn's like, "Okay, I know we're here for this thing. I have to get. I've got to save people first. And he goes. He comes over, and with his hand, he reaches down and he scoops up Devin. And at that point, his chest flips open again, and blood's now pouring on Devin. Devin's unconscious at this point from his injury, and he starts going towards the portal. And he and he's and Danica, who at this point is she's ta- she's taken several hits from the minion as well. I haven't mentioned that, but he's gotten close enough to get a couple hits on her a few times, and she hasn't had time to heal herself. She's been healing them the whole time. And Jorn scoops Devin and, and kind of grabs her by the robes and starts pulling her, and she's like, "I don't know what to do," and 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 but she goes with them because Jorn's like, "We gotta go," and they go through the portal, and that just leaves Flynn and Draven. And Flynn, or Draven, screams out to Flynn. He's like, go! Get out! And, uh... <laughs> Flynn's like, hell no! He's like, there's no way I'm going back. <laughs> leaving you here like this. He's like, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's one of those things. He's like, he, he just looks at him and he, he's like, I'm telling you to go! And he's like, sorry, friend. And Flynn just, Flynn being a little bit cocky in that moment, goes, sorry, friend. My job is to protect all citizens of Serenity, and you count. <laughs> and Draven, and, and he comes in, and now it's Draven and him. And at this point, the two of them have some hits, but they're actually received a few heals from Danik for that. They're probably in the best shape, but they're still kind of beat. Uh, Draven's probably taken more by far than uh, Flynn has, because he just keeps jumping in the way to keep the focus on him. And this is going on, and there, you can imagine it, in my mind, imagine this happened long before the movie happened, but in my mind, I picture it very much like, um, if you've seen the uh, uh, Captain America, or Avengers Civil War movie, where it's Winter Soldier and Captain America fighting Iron Man in the middle, where they're just complimenting each other's hits, but at the same time, the dude in the middle is still slapping the snot out of them too. He's doing what he needs to. The guy in the middle is himself is probably better than each one of them individually. and But the two of them are just timing hits and such, trying to complement each other best they can, while still getting hit and cut and slapped and spelled and injured through all of this. 
the portals open. Now this whole thing I just mentioned, 30 seconds. That quick thing was just a quick flash, flash thing going on, but all the damage they've done to death, it's had no effect. And they've done damage. Hasn't slowed them down, hasn't changed a thing. It's still going. Can you even kill death? You kill an undead, but can you kill death? It's a question these guys have to honestly consider at this point. Flynn knows they've only got a little bit of time. And Flynn just, Flynn looks around real quick and yells to Draven, I need 15 seconds. Draven doesn't know what he's going to do. He, does, he goes, he's, he's like, nods his head and at that point comes around and almost steps between him and Flynn, or between Death and Flynn. And so now it's just Death on Draven. And while Flynn backs out and Draven steps in there to take that space. And as I've mentioned, Draven can't win this fight. He just can't. One-on-one, Draven would not win. And there's not many things they've ever come across that Draven wouldn't take one-on-one. His brother being one of the only things, this thing's as stronger than his brother was. And in that 15 seconds, Draven gets hit three or four times and they hurt. They're big injuries. He deals some damage back, but is it really doing anything at this point? He has no idea if anything they've done has even literally inconvenienced this. But he keeps up, but he stands there. And he makes it 15 seconds. And that's all the time it took for Flynn to throw his sword through the portal and grab the hammer. He doesn't know anything about the hammer. doesn't know what it does. All he knows is he's supposed to bring that back. And he pulls, and it's, it's almost like pulling it through thick jello. Like it's, he's, it's something that's holding it there. And he's pulling it and then finally it's free. And as soon as he does, death knows. And the sickle drops from his hand and he just reaches out and grabs Draven by the throat. And he turns and he sees Flynn with the hammer. And he just throws Draven. Again, against the wall. Flynn is standing there, holding that hammer. Not a hammer guy. He's a two-handed sword guy. He's not a hammer guy. But he's like, I'll use it if I got to. And Death just comes walking towards him at a steady pace. It's not slow. and for, It's like, oh, nope, that's not going to happen. And Death comes walking towards him. And then there's a blur next to Death. And Death goes to grab Draven, assuming there's an attack coming. But there's not. Draven goes flying by Death. As fast as he possibly can. Square into Flynn. 
And all he can do is tackle the boy and wrap his arms around him and try to use the momentum to pull them through the portal. And as they're flying through the air, it seems like time itself slows down. They themselves are barely moving. And they can hear the minion yell out in anger as it rushes forward. And then suddenly, they hit the cool brick of Serenity Keep. And Draven yells, close it. Close it now. And Tobias closes the portal mere seconds before death walked through. And that's what we're going to call it for today. Actually ran over 24 minutes, but um, that is the tale of Draven's group and how they were able to retrieve the hammer. But by doing so, they may have made something or somebody very unhappy. Guess we'll see. Now next week, we'll be dealing with the aftermath of these three adventures. All three items have been retrieved. Are there more steps? Are there things that have to be done? Or are they now finally ready to move towards and face the Emperor himself? Well, we're going to have to tune in next week to see, but I can tell you this. Before anything else happens, before anything else major goes on, a new player in the game gets introduced. Someone who has a very long-term and powerful effect on not just this adventure, but the future of Serenity itself. And we'll deal with that person next week. But hey, thanks for coming by. Uh, I'm really happy with this episode. I think it went well. Uh, I had a very uh, cool time going over it with you. Uh, I was hoping we could get... This is where I wanted to get to for a stopping point. Uh, so I'm happy we got to. I was very excited. And I want you to remember that this story I told you is the same story I told them. Because there was nobody in that group that was a player character. None of them were there. They heard this tale from Draven afterward much the same way you heard it now. Except you probably heard it better because I improve on the second telling. <laughs> but, um, yes. So now they have these. Um, what's next? Well, uh, big moves, I'd say. But thank you very much for coming by. I appreciate you hanging out with me. And again, letting me tell my tale. Uh, I say it all the time, but I mean it. Uh, this is probably the favorite thing I get to do. Uh, and even though I know it's not my most popular content and not as many people are here. Um, but... Um, it's still my favorite thing to do. Did I roll that part or write it? So I write the story, um, but in combat, there, even when I'm writing the story, if it's something where I want things to be dangerous, I will roll both sides of the combat. Because I'm not using my own knowledge against me. I'm doing what each person would do. Uh, and I'm kind of trying to come at it from a neutral point. Uh, so sometimes if it's a big fight, I'm going to be honest with you. When I entered into that fight against death, I didn't know who was going to live and die. The dice had an effect on that. Now, I didn't have to. I could have just wrote it the way I wanted to. 
Uh, and for the majority of it, I did. All the things like the punching in the face, that obviously wasn't rolled. You know, the joke about, you know, you think you're scary, try waking up Mercy in the morning kind of thing. You know, that's just, that, that I knew was going to happen. Um, how it ended with Draven grabbing somebody who had the hammer. I assumed it would be Flynn or Jorn. Somebody would grab it and Draven would try to get through the portal at the last point uh, if he was alive. But uh, who is the one that opened the portal? That is Tobias. That's correct. And that's what I was talking about earlier. Um, he gave each team leader an hourglass. And he said, the sand that's inside, pour it out when you're ready to come home. Because he doesn't know where they are. He can't track them. But it doesn't matter if it's a million miles away. The second that dust is out of there, he, he knows where that dust is. He's connected. It's part of the spell. And he can send a portal. He can open a portal to where the dust is. He doesn't know where that is exactly. He doesn't know what's going on. All he knows is the dust is now out there. And he can use that as an anchor point. Say, I'm making a portal here. And the other end opens where the dust is. And that's, that's a big part of how his, his portals work. It's not traditional teleporting by any means. It's a portal magic that's specific to him. Um, and just a, a, a very, very small aside, just a little something I never really went into in detail. The reason that works is because he's not actually opening a portal from one location to another. Seems like it is. What he's opening is a portal of possibility. He's a master of time magic. And while he's also a master of rune magic, and that's mostly what he does, time magic means he's opening a portal and he's opening another portal. But that's a portal of possibility. Because what if, one second ago, those people weren't there, they were here instead. They're literally going through time in the fraction of a second using the possibility and the endless list of possibilities that exist that they're not there anymore but what if one second ago they were here the sand is the anchor for that the portal from there brings you back through time one second putting you where you would have been one second ago so technically when they jump in the portal it's one second uh, after they're actually coming through on this end that's that's kind of how I worked out some of the time magic abilities that he has. And we haven't touched on a lot of those, uh, and some of those we won't for a very long time. Uh, but that's a lot of how the time magic works, is by literally altering what's happened by going through time. And even with his power, he's limited on how much he can do. He's the keeper of time. He's not sent to screw around with it. He's been given some special license in this situation. That was part of the agreement by taking on that role as the keeper of time that he would be given the things he needed to screw up and ruin and destroy and kill the Emperor of Oromon. So he's got a little bit of license outside of what he's normally allowed to do by fiddling with time specifically for this instance. I'm wondering if the minion says something to Tobias before the portal closes or if the minion knows who Tobias or something. There's a lot of questions. Well, I'll tell you... Um, whether the minion knows or not, the goddess of death does. She's a god. Gods know lots of stuff. <laughs> now, whether that minion will be sent after him again, or the goddess takes other paths. 
It's not the minion that they angered in that situation. It was truly death herself. Hmm. Repercussions. All right, guys. I got to call that a day. We're after 11 at this point. We've gone a little long, but I appreciate you guys coming here. I appreciate the questions. Uh, definitely, it's awesome. You guys are invested in this. I felt today was a really good episode. Some episodes are better than others, and I really like today's. Uh, so hopefully, you did too. If you did, please click the like button on my channel here. If you're new here, please be sure to subscribe. Uh, still 13.9, but we're over 14,000. Um, if you're listening to this on Spotify or iTunes, uh, it would be awesome if you wouldn't mind giving it a like as well. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, but you have Spotify or iTunes, it would do me a huge favor if you wouldn't mind jumping onto your account, giving it a follow or a subscribe, whichever one it is, giving it a like, giving it a rating, um, maybe even give it a review. Uh, all that stuff really, really has a huge effect on how many eyes the podcast gets put in front of on those types of mediums. Um, so it would definitely help a lot if you have the time and you're so inclined. It would be awesome. But in either case, most importantly, please come back next Thursday so we can tell you a little bit more of our story. All right? You folks have a wonderful day. My next stream is tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be doing some more Let's Build, finishing up um, the Headhunter Let's Build that I'm building now. All right? You folks have yourselves a wonderful evening, and I hopefully will see you again very soon. Have yourselves a great day.